VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, October the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So as, of course, you've heard Brian Madorn, if you're a baseball fan or even a casual sports observer, the Jays looked pretty flat last night against the Minnesota Twins. Thankfully, I couldn't watch the whole ball game. I had a hockey meeting last night, but they drop a 3-1 decision. It's do or die tonight for the beloved, Blue, or I guess my beloved Blue Jays. You know when there's legendary concerts or famous uh, sporting events, and people will harken back, and sometimes it will be the exaggeration of, I was there. You know, Woodstock, say, for instance. This date in 1980, I was at this game. Future Hall of Famer Philly, Mike Schmidt, third baseman, of course, two-run shot after Stan Bonson in the 11th inning, giving Philly the 6-4 win versus the Montreal Expos and the NL East title. This was an interesting turn of events for Expos fans. And remember, there's conversation about bringing the Expos back into Major League Baseball. So... Schmidt hit this one in the top of the 11th. The Expos had taken a couple of games from the Phillies on the 26th and 28th uh, and the 28th in Philly, put the Expos a half game ahead. The Phillies went on to beat the Cubs four in a row to set up the weekend series against the Expos. After Schmidt hit the home run, or pardon me, Schmidt hits the home run in the top of the 11th, their closer, Tug McGraw, pitched three scoreless innings to wrap it up in the NL East title. But one of the goalies I played with, the name is Brad Pierce. His parents, uh, Lance and Mona, they invited me to go to this game. Well, for the weekend set. So I don't remember a whole lot about it. I remember we stayed at a Ramada, close enough to walk to the Big O. And I also remember being in the hallway playing roller hockey with the dinner roll. So anyway, unbelievably, I was actually at that game, one of my first big league games. Okay, good luck to all hands participating in the National Soccer Championships, kicking off today. We mentioned a couple of the under-17s, under-17 teams, what have you. But it's also the Challenge Cup. Felians are ranked third, going to the National Challenge Cup uh, competition. And the defending national champions on the Jubilee Cup side, of course, are Holy Cross. So good luck to all hands. All right, another, I think, fascinating on this date in history. This caught the Americans off guard, and it began the space race and part of the Cold War. It was on this date in 1957 that the Soviet Union launched the first successful artificial object to exit Earth's atmosphere. Of course, the satellite, Sputnik 1. So at that time, there wasn't any real space race, and as a result of Sputnik, and caught the Americans off guard, they was not anticipated by the Americans, so obviously that was the beginning of the space race, and here we are talking about Artemis and going back to the moon. So at that point, uh, there was a real all-out sprint for political, military, technological, and scientific developments regarding space travel. And, of course, uh, Sputnik is Russian for traveler. And that's if you use it in the astronomical context. But Sputnik begins the space race today in 1957. Harry, speaking of Cold War, it's really quite a sight to drive down the Pittsburgh, pardon me, the Parkway, and see so-called mini tent city set up directly across from the Confederation Building. I don't know how much we're going to have to talk about housing before we actually see some solutions. Now, it's fine for the Premier to say earlier in the year there were 750 affordable units announced. Okay. Apparently, there's another housing initiative coming, uh, another announcement coming in the days, sometime maybe this week, maybe next week. 
You know, what we don't hear is because everyone's got their own stake in this, right? Whether you be someone who's struggling to afford your rent, uh, struggling to get a mortgage, find yourself homeless, you're in the private construction business, you're in the non-market housing business, you're an advocate, whoever you are. This issue is just not going to go away until we see. Now, I'm not going to suggest that some of these, what sometimes feels like a bit of a waste of time and a wheel spinner, is for so-called summits. But because everybody's got a different stake in the need to want to build homes, to have people housed adequately, where is the actual plan? It's fine to tell me, you know, for affordable housing units, a four-unit apartment building, 5% off the GST will be uh, taken away from the cost of materials, labor, whatever. but where is the plan? It is a startling sight to see that. Now, in many of the parks around the city, you will see exactly that. We're not immune to what we're seeing in other big cities. For instance, in Toronto over the summer, a stone's throw from the Rogers Centre, a really permanent-looking tent city right there for all to see in one of the green spaces. So how we get somewhere advanced past where we are, if you've got the ideas, the solutions, and where you think we should be going and how we get there, let's talk about it. Because when you add up the amount of money spent on emergency shelters, hotels, and the like, and even subsidized housing with the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, obviously there are far too many people falling through those cracks. So I'm not even really sure where to take the conversation necessarily. Your contribution would be most welcome on the program. But, you know... Even if we're talking about a plan to satisfy the stats coming from the Canadian Mortgage uh, uh, Group, if we're talking about building 10,000 units a year over the next six years, how does that even get, how is that achievable? If a big season here for housing starts at 2,500, how do you close that gap? And then what's also sort of missing in this conversation is exactly what affordable means. And can the private sector, realistically speaking, you know, I see uh, Mr. Malum talking about moving away from the 50 by 100 lot and trying to use uh, single family dwellings as the way forward here. Not so sure that's going to satisfy the need. Do we even have the tradespeople to build those ma that many homes over the course of the next six years? So where our plan lies is an excellent question. And we're certainly going to have to take it on because, again, Seeing people in tents, you talk about the Cold War, here comes the winter. We don't even have emergency shelters for all hands who need them. On top of that, you know, they say they're not leaving until they get an affordable, accessible, safe place to lay their head. Now, I don't think there's even something available right this moment in time, which is a stark uh, reality check to know that we might not even have a place for them. So I, I think about the housing uh, probably a little bit too much, but it's a critically important issue. All right. This is another housing-related conversation, and it's about the need for so many people to age in place. We've had some conversations with the uh, seniors advocate about this. There are going to be some federal and national conversations about what aging in place looks like and tax credits available. But again, when we do the compare and contrast of how much money we spend, for instance, in, in, to, in the institutionalization of seniors, long-term care facilities, personal care homes, how much does it cost to add the additional home care support required to keep people where they're most happiest, where they're most content, in their own home and their familiar surroundings, closer to their friends, closer to their families, places they want to be. I would imagine if we do the math, it is much more cost efficient and better for people if they can stay home. How many people are in a long-term care bed today who if they just had the minimal additional support, they would still be at home? Now, there may indeed be a time when moving into a long-term care facility is absolutely required, given the level of medical attention you might need. 
So now there's been an announcement of $8 million going to the home care sector. Inside the, apparently there's some uh, 34 home, home support agencies province-wide. We've heard from many people working in that sector that it's, uh, it's hard work. It is really hard work. And this money will not go towards increasing their rate of pay. You know, talking about uh, the need for improvements, the increased standard of care, those types of things. So this is a good start. But it is about time. And, you know, even if there has been some uh, national conversation about aging in place, the province does have an opportunity here. While they're conducting the review of long-term care facilities, personal care homes, how do they incorporate the need and the cost and the benefits of being able to stay in your own home? Because that's what we're doing here. You know, just compare the cost of designing, building, operating, maintaining, and staffing a long-term care facility, what that would look like, even if we're talking about a, a unit that has, what, 60 beds. What is that overall cost per year over the course of a decade? How could that money be refunneled to keep people where they really want to be? At home. Now, for some folks, more than happy to move into a congregate living facility, more than happy to be attended to with their health care worries or woes, and maybe the loneliness, which is also a big problem for seniors, which enhanced home care could solve some of that as well. So, more money for the home care agencies. Maybe we'll uh, have an opportunity here to speak with uh, Elizabeth Jenkins. She's the president of the Home Care Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. If she's listening this morning and you have time for us, maybe uh, give David a call, hop in the queue. And off we go. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we're talking about the fact that there was election pledges about $10 a day daycare. Some people think it's a bad idea. I seem to think it's a great idea. What was not done prior to the announcement and some of the money's flowing was understanding just how many spaces were needed. And unless you have the required number of early childhood educators, you can create a space, but if you can't staff it, it's much like having some empty beds in the hospital, empty beds in long-term care. So the province has paid attention to the wage grid. Some of those announcements and some of the incentives will indeed see more early childhood educators, but think about it. We're asking them to do virtually identical tasks to what we're asking the province's teachers to do in pre-K or kindergarten, but the one thing absent from early childhood educators is pensions and benefits. So when asked, Minister Howell said that, you know, at this moment in time, nothing's off the table, but you know, if you are really going to incentivize someone to take on a task as important as teaching our children and caring for our children while they're in these early childhood education settings, you know, it's one thing to increase my pay by a few dollars an hour, quite another for me to see it as a career where I can work hard, do what I'm asked to do, achieve the appropriate accreditation, and have a pension at the end of the day. Because they're working in the education system. Daycare is simply not about putting out a bunch of blocks and balls and snacks and nap time and reading stories and singing songs and running around the backyard. There's much more to it than that. So the other end of the spectrum, as we've mentioned. All right. And we're quick to label everything with an ISM, right? Everything's got an ism all of a sudden. You know, again, when we look at conversations regarding minimum wage, is there ever a way to get it right on minimum wage? There is no such thing as one-size-fits-all when we talk about your rate of pay. Every time anybody, including myself, bring up universal basic income, we're rebuffed that, you know, I, people call you, you know, the Margaret Thatcher nonsense, that, you know, we're going to run out of other people's money. Fair, but ha again, have we ever done a deep dive into cost? One of the biggest problems plaguing society, one of the leading causes of death, one of the leading causes of societal ills, and all that's involved in that uh, big envelope, is poverty. 
<laughs> it just is. And you can work hard. And of course, there's a lot to be said for, and it is not untrue, that it's an entry-level job by, for the most part. And the opportunity to work hard, pad your resume, move up the chain, with, which comes with increased pay. But again, can we ever satisfy that conversation with simply focusing on how much per hour? You know, because where does, where is that number? Is it 20 bucks? Because $20 an hour living in St. John's might be one thing, but in other parts of the province where you might be living at home with your parents, and that's another conversation that's happening. Just see the spike in the number of Canadians that have decided because of the cost of rent, the cost of heat, the cost of insurance, and all that's involved with home ownership, moving back into with their parents. Multi-generational housing. So I'm not so sure we're going to get it right, even if we just come up with a number per hour. What do you think? Let's talk about it. All right. This is certainly not welcome news for some who have been vocal opponents of World Energy GH2 and their proposals on the Port of Port Peninsula for wind, hydrogen, ammonia. The Federal Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gibo said that the area and the proposal does not warrant designation under the Federal Impact Assessment Act. So it will be up to the province to green like this or not. A couple of key focus areas brought forward by whether it be held in force in the Council of Canadians or others is that if there was a federal uh, assessment, which does have a, maybe an additional layer of comprehensive attention, but the key would be that under that process, there would be the possibility to apply to be an intervener and possibility for funding to hire your own folks who can compi compile all the data, do the historical look, point out some of the risks, maybe a little clearer than folks who are simply being advocates, and that's not to demean an advocate, why would I? But that's not gonna happen. There will be no federal assessment. I'm not gonna be surprised if we hear from a couple of people on that front today, but again, interestingly, it's only a focus on that particular project. Have, has anybody heard I don't think I've heard on this program anybody who's opposed to pattern energy in Port of Argentia or Brea or down the uh, Buren Peninsula or out at Botwood with the Exploits Valley Group, but there will not be any federal intervening on this particular project. Here's a quote from the minister responsible federally. The legislative process that currently applies to the project and related consultations with potentially impacted indigenous peoples provide a framework to address the potential adverse aforementioned effects and concern raised by indigenous peoples and other members of the public. Your thoughts. We can take them on. Uh, can't even read my own stuff here. Oh, and on the front of world energy. So we did have Jennifer Williams, the CEO of Newfoundland Labrador Hydro on the show, and one of the questions I asked her is about their interaction, that group's interaction with our own grid. First, she said that any infrastructure requirements would have to be paid by the proponent. Okay, but now we understand that world energy will have a demand on our grid. In the summer months, when it's off-peak off season for demand on the grid and demand on uh, generation, they're gonna be looking for some 10, 10 megawatts a day. 24 hours a day. Other than the summer, the thought is that they're asking for 150 megawatts 24-7. That's a whopping amount of power compared to the generational output at Hollywood, which is about 490 megawatts. Muskrat Falls, 824 megawatts. So 150 represents a big number. A lot of the worried folks out there about the impact on the grid, that does complicate it. Hydro says they're looking at it, and of course people immediately go to the fact that they're talking about diesel-generated backup capacity. 
even though they say they're doing some 20 related studies to see what power what alternative sources may be available beyond diesel and you can only hope they come up with a better idea than diesel but that's a big demand and interaction with the grid how that and where that's going to land i guess we're going to have to have miss williams back on the show sooner than later to see where they are because by the end of this month there will be green lights and unless we get down to all the brass tacks, control of oil and lubricant, impact on everything for flora and fauna and wildlife and birds and moose, and yes, interaction with the grid, and yes, concerns people have about the ammonia facilities, that doesn't mean you're not willing to entertain the conversation about these projects coming to the province and whatever monies and jobs are associated with it. But getting it right is something that we haven't been great at over the years, especially on these mega or large scale projects. So any questions you want to ask, we can do it. All right, very, very quickly. Uh, talking about speed, like if you drive around town, you know full well the madhouse. Interestingly, and the pushback has been absolutely overwhelming, in the UK, one of the four countries in the UK is Wales. They've dropped their speed limit down to, in what they call built-up areas, to 32 kilometers an hour, so school zone speeds. It's about a 10-mile-an-hour drop in their normal speed limit. People are furious. Thousands of people are signing petitions because, of course, the traffic is at a bit of a standstill. And their uh, model of protest is to simply drive fast. You know, for in large part, it doesn't matter what the speed limit is unless people are willing to respect it. It doesn't matter what the speed limit is unless people are there to enforce it, which is why I'd be curious to see the outcome of the speed camera pilot project. But they've seen, you know, Spain has done it already, and what they saw is a 10% reduction in pedestrian collisions or pedestrians being struck. You know, it's all about trying to get people out of their vehicle to walk and to bike and the rest of it. But a fascinating story, and I read the comment section. It was absolutely over the top. Last one before we get to your calls. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Okay, fine. One of the most celebrated athletes in the province's history has passed. Mel Fitzgerald. You know, he really led the way for para-athletes here in this province. He excelled in basketball and wheelchair track. He won marathons in Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, Honolulu. Represented his country at two Paralympics, two Pan American Games, the 84 Gold Cup in Australia. Gold medals at each of these set two world records at the 1980 Paralympics. He's in the Canadian Wheelchair Hall of Fame. He's been living in New Zealand. But you ask the Joanne McDonalds and the Liam Hickeys and all other participants in para-sports. Mel Fitzgerald was a giant. A great part of that story is, as early as 1980, when para-sports and para-athletes were not a big part of the sporting conversation, he was named the Athlete of the Year, period, for Newfoundland and Labrador back in 1980. I think Brian Medora was part of that committee. Maybe we'll speak with Brian a little bit later in the show. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineatvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number four and say good morning to the Assistant Professor of Island and Environmental Studies at the University of PEI. That's Nick Mercer. Good morning, Nick. You're on the air. How you doing? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, not so bad. Thanks. Excited to get into this project here this morning. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Patty, you may, you may be aware I sent you a letter earlier this week. Um, I've been providing a little bit of support to the Environmental Transparency Committee on the, the Port of Port Peninsula in a volunteer capacity. And I'm, uh, I'm really quite concerned that the, the federal minister has, des has denied the request for federal designation as a, as a result of this project. Um, and I think at a minimum, I, I have some really serious concerns about the implications of this project. For starters, let's begin with what you understand to be the difference between how we're handling it provincially 
and what's actually triggered by a federal environmental assessment with the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Beyond the ability to apply for intervener status and possibly some funding for your own due diligence or research be conducted, what do we understand about what else is done? Because intervener status is important for debate and consultation, but what else is evaluated by the Impact Assessment Agency versus what we're doing provincially? Yeah, so I mean, first and foremost, let's transcend both processes. Let's put both the provincial process, the federal process aside and talk about community power. Um, so a, a big component of what I do in my, my scholarship is investigate the procedural justice dimensions of mega renewable energy projects. So uh, that is how communities are participating in energy governance, as well as the characteristics of some of that participation. So if we look at this World Energy GH2 project, there's a bunch of failures right off the bat. Um, first and foremost, this project was announced without the knowledge of community members, which is, you know, quite disappointing. Um, some of my mentors from the west coast of newfoundland has taught me that uh, if you approach a community with a fully baked idea you've already violated your ethical obligations to those communities because they weren't involved in shaping the idea and they're already at a disadvantage so you know i have friends i have family i have colleagues in, in western newfoundland and they didn't know what was happening on the port of port peninsula well helicopters filled with you know wealthy stakeholders uh, were flying over their heads so a concern uh, from the onset uh, in terms of power and community involvement uh, but as we move this thing along i mean i think the province has been quite clear that this thing is going ahead uh, i listened on uh, cbc the other day to the the audio documentary where minister andrew parsons was on and he came out and he said objectively that objectively that it is more likely than not that this project is going to go ahead based on the work that's been done his words not mine uh, so to me this is this is a fait accompli fait accompli why do we even subject these mega projects to any level of environmental approval if if the regulators that are responsible for improving them uh, are the biggest cheerleaders for them uh, so for that reason alone i think the provincial process is completely inadequate i think the fox is guarding the hen house here uh, and I think we need to move to something. Uh, if the project's not going to be stopped, if we're not going to devolve power to the community, if we're not going to support social license, at minimum, we need an independent, transparent, open process that puts this thing on pause uh, and allows Mi'kmaq, Acadian, and rural descendants from the Port of Port Peninsula to actually have a say uh, and shape the outcomes of this project. So due to the failures at the provincial level, I really think we need to pull every lever we possibly can to make sure that the voices uh, on the port of port peninsula are heard so all that being said i guess that goes back to the question i asked initially about if we're going to talk about consultations and evaluations or assessments what difference would GIBO triggering the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada mean? Because the project has been announced, we're starting to have a better understanding of what's involved, the impact it will have environmentally and otherwise. So do you know exactly what happens under a federal assessment versus what we're doing here provincially? Because that might satisfy some of the questions or concerns that you're bringing forward. It might not give you the answers that you want, but it will certainly shine a brighter light on some of the things that you spoke to. Yeah, for me, it comes down to an issue of power. So my, my position is is that the provincial environmental assessment process is toothless, it's a fait accompli, and the federal environmental process is a chance to start anew, to start fresh, to provide funding, uh, to invite communities in, to grant intervener status. I mean, I'm of the position that all environmental, sta all environmental assessment processes are broken. Uh, these are not policy tools that are meant to protect the environment. 
if you look at some of the statistics historically, the vast, vast, vast majority of any large-scale industrial project that goes to environmental assessment is approved. And that's because these processes are not meant to stop development. I mean, for God's sakes, the Bay de Nord project, uh, which has been described as a carbon bomb, you know, with, with the potential to heat our planet and cause serious warming and runs counter to the best available environmental assessment, got through scot-free in this environmental assessment process. So my position is, in the federal process, is that the provincial process is broken. Uh, the federal process provides at least a fresh start and an opportunity to be involved. But what we need to move is actually beyond these, you know, uh, piecemeal Band-Aid tools to mitigate against impacts on the environment and give power to communities to guide and be the champions of their own futures. So as I, st- I'm, I was very sad to leave Newfoundland first and foremost, but uh, to land in, in Prince Edward Island has been, you know, the second best island uh, in the province, not a bad place to land. But as I'm watching this thing unfold, I mean, you can look to rural areas of Newfoundland and Labrador that have bucked the trend, um, that have revitalized, that have, you know, conquered great things in the face of a, a corporately state-imposed cod collapse. Um, in those places, to me, I mean, the one that jumps off the page, the Bonavista Peninsula, Fogo Island, these communities have done it. These communities have shown what it looks like when community members band together, when they guide their own future, when they build their economies and their societies based on the cultural and natural assets that are unique to each place. And what didn't happen on Fogo Island was that a wealthy company from away didn't come in and propose the largest mega wind hydrogen project on the face of the earth. The the Fogo Island Inn wouldn't exist um, if a company had come in and done this. All of these unique boutiques and artisanal workshops would not exist if the corporate sector uh, came in and dominated its vision for the environment. Uh, So instead of being in one of these processes where the private industry gets to decide what the future is gonna look like in Newfoundland and Labrador, I'm far more interested in community-led processes where rural residents get to decide their own future. And this federal assessment process, well not perfect, is one tool that we have can, that can help us move in that direction. Yeah, speaking of Fogo, not everyone has a Z to cop, but people can mimic the successes of the Shoreline Foundation, which was a hybrid of societal and cultural and economic engines that needed to be revved back up. This is where I think that I'm not really quite sure, and I'm completely open-minded on this one. You mentioned Bay de Nord. So if the current minister, Gibo greenlit Bay de Nord, why would we expect a federal assessment on this type of project to have any sort of different outcome? Because are we simply in some corners talking about the optics versus the process? Because if Gibo is willing to approve uh, uh, Bay de Nord, an oil operation, what leads anyone to believe that his uh, Impact Assessment Agency of Canada wouldn't approve a wind hydrogen ammonia project? That's where I think sometimes, even if the processes are broken, and I'm not denying that that's uh, uh, inaccurate, I don't know exactly what gets triggered here. Because if Gibo yeah. says what's currently in place is already good enough, and he was willing to greenlight an oil, uh, an oil project, then I don't know what else we get by his intervention on this front. And that's just throwing out the base on, you know, because sometimes optics are reality in politics, optics are reality in any of these mega projects. So I, I'll just put that out there for your, your uh, comments. 
No, I, I think it's an interesting point. I mean, the, the, the hypothesis that I'm hearing from you is what's the point? No, if, no, no. I'm, I'm just, I, you know, I was just picking up what you laid down. He greenlit an oil project, and here's this sort of alternative form of energy project, which does have some warts that have to be evaluated and adjudicated. But it's not a what, what's the point, but is there a point? Right. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And I, I think the answer is, is that it's better than the alternative. When you have a minister that's coming out and saying it's a fait accompli, that it's done, it's more likely than not, it's going to happen. That takes all the power away from a community. They don't have, what's the point of participating in the provincial environmental assessment process at this point when the leaders have already come out and said, uh, listen, boys, it's more likely than not, it's going to go ahead. So at this point in time, the communities on the Port of Port Peninsula, they have to pull every lever. They have to tug on every strand. They have to do everything in their power uh, to try to have their voices heard. And one of these options, well, not perfect, is to start anew via this federal assessment process. Now, it's not perfect. Um, if the communities were to have an ideal outcome, we would respect the tenants of free, power, and informed consent. We would respect the tenants of social license in the communities. We would empower these communities to, to make their own decisions based on processes of place-based development. And trust me, people on the Port of Port Peninsula are working to get there. Uh, if you look at the provincial government's renewable energy plan that came out in 2021, uh, which mentioned hydrogen about 45 or 50 times, uh, for instance, there's actually some really interesting things in the latter part of this document, specifically around how the province is going to govern uh, renewable energy transitions in remote communities in the province. And one huge commitment that the province made in this renewable energy plan was to empower communities to own renewable energy projects, to participate in renewable energy projects and to control renewable energy projects. So the question that I have for the provincial government and for everyone listening, if we're willing to grant these powers of consent, control, participation and engagement in some of the smallest communities in the province, why aren't we willing to grant these same powers to rural Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are going to have to live with the brutal impacts of these, these mega projects? So I agree with you. The federal process is not perfect, but it's one of the only tools we have right now in the absence of legitimate processes which give power and control and agency. Yeah, I, I wonder what social license actually looks like on the Port of Port Peninsula because some people might, might very quietly be thinking, I could use a job. So I don't know what percentage of people are opposed or are all for the project, but that's where... You know, World Energy will say, well, we have the social license. The Council of Canadians will say, no, you don't. Who's right? I don't know, to be honest. Well, the, the but very, I'll let you wrap it up quickly, Nick, because they're flagging me out. Yeah. Yeah, the, I guess the thing is there's no such thing as objective research, right? Any type of research we do in this world, natural science research, social science research, has a normal biases associated with it. So when I look at World Energy's GH2 study that they did that said 80% of Western Newfoundlanders support onshore wind energy development, that included a bunch of people off the peninsula. Uh, when you look at the, the study done by the Environmental Transparency Committee, I mean, I think it showed that there's enormous opposition to the project. So the question that I would ask is that if we're willing to use social license as this guiding principle for hydraulic fracturing in Western Newfoundland, as Premier um, Ball said we would, why are we not willing to extend the same power to large-scale extractive mega projects? Put it to the people. Allow them to have a voice. Use a federal process, grant agency and control to the people of the Port of Port Peninsula, just like we have done in Fogo Island and elsewhere. That's what I'd like to see moving forward. Appreciate the time, Nick. Thanks for this. 
Yeah, thanks for the conversation, Patty. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Nick Mercer, Assistant uh, Professor of Island Environmental Studies at UPEI. Will I take Brendan here, David? Let's go to line one. Brendan, you're on the air. Yes, I'm calling about uh, fall fishery. Do you always have it during hurricane season? We were out there last week, and I tell you, the tides and everything on and the swells, you couldn't see Bell Oil most of the time. I just don't understand why you don't wait an extra week or so till the hurricane season and then open it for the northeast Avalon. Shocking, you go seven or eight days and you can't get a fish. 40 meters of water and you got 100 meters of rope out and she's still hauling anchor and twisting all over. Me boats for coming out and have to tell them all to go back because they wouldn't get out there. Shocking, nobody talks about or nothing. I tell you, it's not fit for anybody boy, to be out there during hurricane season, especially with northeast wind in for a week. He knows all this during hurricane season. I don't know why he can't wait till the first week in October and then open it up for a week and give people a chance to get a few fish. Fall fish every year, same thing. Just the cycle he got going. He knows about the hurricane season and everything, and he don't do nothing about it. Yeah, the summer season ended on the 4th of September, reopened in the fall on the 23rd, ended on the 1st of October. I don't know if there's a rationale as to why they don't wait, say, for instance, to the 1st of October to reopen it for the fall. I don't think I've ever heard anyone offer me an explanation as to why the dates are the way they are. And they're very similar every year. You know, yeah, it's pretty predictable that the last week of, uh, of September will be the fall season. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It okay. is in hurricane season. I'll see if we can get DFO to offer some sort of explanation, but it's a fair question because we know that people who are wanting to get out and fish will potentially and possibly make a bad decision and go out when they really should not be on the water. So that's a fair point you're making, Brendan. I don't have an answer to it, but I'll see if I can find one. Okay, thank you very much. Have a good day. The very same too. Thanks for the call. Okay, there we go. That's a good question. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, Dr. Lodetta, Lodetta Cueco, she's the founder and CEO of Sharing Our Cultures, joins us on the line. Then plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven. Say good morning to the founder and CEO of Sharing Our Cultures. That's Dr. Loidetta Cueco. Dr. Cueco, you're on the air. Oh, good morning. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share our project with your listening audience. Happy to do it. I love the acronym. Yes. Tell <laughs> yes. us about it. Yes. Well, our Youth Engaging Seniors, uh, Bridging the Generation Gap, is a project that uh, we're launching for 2023-2024, and it will involve um, junior and senior high school youth being matched with seniors, and um, we're leaving seniors open for everyone to self-identify if they want to be a senior or not. But the whole idea is to be able to get seniors that opportunity where they can share their knowledge, their experiences, their skills with junior, senior, high school youth. Um, primarily, I guess, um, youth from all cultures. It's a, it's a diverse and inclusive group of youth. And whatever they'll teach them uh, in arts and crafts or music or dance or, you know, creating an object, the youth will get an opportunity to write about that, so they'll be matched with the senior, so probably, probably one senior to two or three um, youth. And uh, 
all the meetings will be supervised and all the supplies will be provided. And whatever the um, the youth create with that senior, they will um, have a presentation and exhibit that at the rooms in St. John's in March 2024. And um, this has also been done in Labrador and in Ganda. So, but the one in St. John's is what we are sort of asking your audience. If they have some time, um, they identify as a senior and they would like to meet and teach some of our youth um, the skills that they have. We realize that sometimes some of these heritage uh, arts and culture are dying away without being transmitted to the next generation. So this is an opportunity to do that. And also we'll have, you know, a youth. Some of them are here who've migrated, that they don't have the older members of their family around here with them, but it gives them an opportunity to connect with someone um, in that age bracket. And then they would have an opportunity as well to learn. And it's intercultural, it's intergenerational. So we're hoping that uh, some people may want to volunteer their time, which would be um, one, uh, one or two hours a week um, or every other week, depending on what craft they're working on. And they will meet at our Learning and Resource Center, which is on 390 Elizabeth Avenue in St. John's. It's just underneath the Somerville condominium. So if there's anyone out there that's interested, would love to do this, um, sure, you wouldn't, um, uh, you know, you, you would enjoy it because the young people are vibrant, full of life, and they really want to learn, and they're very curious. So if you're interested, you can get in touch with me. It's Lloyd Detta, and you can reach me at 709-727-2372 or at our office number here, which will be between uh, working hours, 830 to 530, at 709 709- 726-1504 and if you want to use email you can also use that to contact us at info at sharingourcultures.com and of course your group is called sharing our cultures well part of this is a preservation of culture as well isn't it yes it is yes it is because we're hoping that we will have photographs and um, video recordings of the youth presenting what they've learned and this is going to be a legacy because it's going to live on it'll be used as a resource a learning and teaching resource in schools and in the public as well I, I love it. And, you know, inevitably, the seniors might not only uh, be sharing their experience and their, their skills and the arts and the crafts and the songs and the dance, what have you, but inevitably the seniors are also going to learn a thing or two from the youth, which is a, a, a match made in heaven. Yes, it is. It is. Loredetta, you're doing great work. Anything else you'd like to say this morning? Well, I'd like to uh, thank everyone who's um, supported us, volunteered with us over the years. It's our 23rd year now for sharing our cultures. We're looking forward to, in a couple of years, uh, our 25th anniversary, but we just, I just want to take this opportunity to thank them. I want to thank in advance those who would get in touch with us as well. We also want to mention that this particular project is funded by the Government of Canada, so it makes it possible for us to um, uh, pay for all the supplies that uh, will be used for the project and whatever refreshments if we have when we bring the youth and the seniors together. And whatever the youth produce will be demonstrated at the rooms during the Sharing Our Cultures events March 17th through the 22nd of 2024. I have all the contact information on hand so if you're unable to jot it down if you send me an email I will share Lodetta's contact number email address whatever they need. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thanks for this. And have a great day. The very same to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Dr. Lodetta Cueco is the founder and CEO of Sharing Our Cultures. Let's go to line number three. Helen, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. 
How are you? Grant, how are you doing? That's good. Um, it's an issue that's been, um, I, I guess, that's been on the go for the past few years in Foxtrap. Uh, I remember last year before the school ended for the summer, there was a, a controversy on the go with a, a wreck at the schools at Queenie and Frank Roberts. So... As everyone is aware of, like, you know, there's a major rat problem here. And, you know, it's the schools. They're saying it's the schools, but it's not the schools. It's actually the students. They're out. They're having their lunches. They're on, on their break for the morning. Like, the place looks like an actual dump up here. Like, it's crazy. Like, the pictures that I've taken the past few months, and it keeps on adding and adding. And, like, it's not going away. Like, you know, we went to... Uh, uh, police officers and said, you know, would you guys mind giving yourselves like a bit of time just to go there and just, you know, look at what these young kids are doing to to the schoolyards. Like it's it's crazy. Uh, again, like I said, I mean the rats are just and what and now like the rats are actually coming on to our land on our premises. Like my neighbors, my neighbors across the street, like we have rat problems and it's because the students are like not throwing their garbage in a garbage can which is only like a couple of feet away from them they're just throwing it all over the the school property with no care whatsoever and we're the ones that have to deal with it trying to figure out how can we get rid of this rat problem when it's it's not us that's doing it again it's the students like they're they have no respect you 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 uh, you would try to address the problem with them and you know you're this and you're that and you know mind your own business kind of thing like i mean something has to be done about it uh we've called the schools and asked to speak to the principal well okay well let's take your number we we give them our numbers and we never hear from them so like what 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 do we have to do to 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 make this problem go away you know what i mean I get it. Uh, you sent me the pictures. It's disgraceful, the amount of litter. I didn't see any roads, but that doesn't say they're not there because they're absolutely everywhere. For the student body, I mean, we see this far too often. There's got to be an approach by administration that not only are you going to come to school and hopefully be well-behaved and do your level best with the curriculum, but it's a bit of pride in the school. And that's not just about singing rally songs on the way to the hockey game. That's about keeping the place neat and tidy and cleaning up. It can be part of their actual day-to-day education as uh, classrooms taking turns with all the safe uh, approach to it but clean the place up the pictures you sent me are unbelievable it's crazy and again like that was pictures that i took last week uh again this evening now when the students all leave i'll go down there and there's like even more added and it's it's ongoing it's on a daily basis and and you try to be polite with the students and you know you you know guys come off it like you know we got rats here and it's you know you guys are causing the rats to come on our land like i mean you know this this is this is my home like i mean this is our like our properties and you know we try to keep everything on on uh, you know that what you would want to call like a you know a beautiful place that you want to live but when with an issue like this like it's not going away and and you know you'll call the teachers and we'll get back to you and you know here it is like two years later and we still haven't heard nothing from the teachers like the principal or and again like I mean it, it it's happening every day like and again like you cannot go out there and say guys come off it like again being polite with them and you know they're giving you the middle finger and they're telling you to go into house and mind your own business and 
you know, it's pretty sad that, you know, that has come to that, you know? It is. The school really does have a responsibility to the community at large, not just inside the walls of the school proper, because the playground, the parking lot, the surrounding area, the fence that all that's blown up against, that's their responsibility, as it should be. Uh, Helen, I appreciate this. Would you like to say anything else quickly? No, I'm good. I just wanted to get my point across, and hopefully something will be done about it. I appreciate the time. It's a privilege for them to park there in their vehicles on a daily basis. So, again, like, you know, clean up. Clean up after yourself. Fair ball. Thanks for this. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, yeah, I've seen the pictures. <laughs> it really is quite the mess. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, appreciate the patience of those of you in the queue. We'll get back to you right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number eight. Greg, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Hi. Um, I came on this morning or trying to... Um, you know, I'm quite concerned about this um, 150 megawatt grid tie that World Energy GH2 uh, want from the province. Um, the question is basically, you know, uh, where is this electricity going to come from? Uh, 150 megawatts is like eight Star Lakes or a quarter of Beta Spear, kind of a quarter of Muskeg Falls. Where is this going to come from is the first question. Second question is, how is it going to be assessed in the provincial assessment process, right? Well, I guess the provincial assessment process is strictly environmental at this point, or that's the key assessment that people point to. But you're right, 150 megawatts is pretty significant. You know, uh, Holyrood generates about 490 megawatts, 824 at Muskrat Falls. And then we're talking about electrifying the grid further with moving people off oil to heat their homes, the potential for more electric vehicles to be sold, all of those things that have been part of the conversation. Now at 150 megawatts, that's a big number. Yeah, so so we actually yeah, so we we also have to consider Patty that there are three there are four other projects on the books. Yep. So if they all want 150 megawatts, that gives us 600 megawatts uh, that we've got to find somewhere. Um, and I think that this should be um, subject to the provincial assessment. Uh, in a, in an article uh, Patrick Butler did for CBC that I read this morning. He um, basically said that uh, anticipated benefits of potentially supplying electricity to the grid are detailed in Section 2345 of the Environmental Assessment uh, documents that have been filed by World Energy GH2. Yeah. However, when you go to look for that section, it does not exist in, in the existing documents. Okay? I couldn't find it. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, well, good luck with that. Um, so, so let's just look at this a little, a little more broadly here. Okay. Um, would Section two, three, four, five, in other words, uh, selling electricity uh, from World Energy GH2 back to the grid, uh, would that be assessed uh, in the federal process? Yes, it would be assessed in the federal process. Um, and I think that the provincial process, in the provincial process, this is going to get uh, swept under the rug. Um, that we have a provincial government that is already in line uh, to uh, push this project forward. 
And that's why everybody is looking for a federal assessment, Patty. It's because there are things happening here that will come out in a federal assessment that will not come out in the provincial assessment. Well, Hydro says they are assessing that uh, power demand request or whatever the right phrase is for world energy. It's no big deal over the summer with 10 megawatts, but 150 is a different kettle of fish uh, an off-summer month. So Hydro says they're looking at it. Regardless of who does the assessment, the, the summary question that you ask and the pointed one is, where does the power come from? So if we're talking about, you know, all the negotiations for a regulatory regime for near-shore, offshore wind, if that's part of this uh, conversation, you know, and then you look down the road where we're talking about decommissioning Holyrood. With all the additional demand that's been forecasted here, that's not going away either. So your, your question is spot on, and I don't think anybody has an answer to it, but put it, put it this way. If the cart is put in front of the horse by the end of this month and the province greenlights this without Hydro saying how they're going to satisfy power needs, then we have absolutely tripped ourselves up. But the, but the provincial minister has another option. The provincial minister, after examining the environmental assessment uh, statement, the EIS, uh, after that review period is over, he can appoint a public review board. And... Uh, I think that uh, that we need to pressure the province into appointing a public review board uh, so that all these kinds of questions can be answered. And I mean, let's face it, Patty, what are the cumulative effects here of all these projects, okay? Not just World Energy GH2, but what are the effects of all of these projects? And we've got to have this conversation. Listen, 10 years down the road, I might not be around, but all our, our kids are going to have to answer some of these questions, you know. All these students who demonstrated at MUN need to be listening to this conversation, and they need to be a part of this. For sure. Uh, Again, all I can say uh, at this point is that until there's an answer to your question about where the power comes from, there's no green light can be offered. Because unless that, that question can be answered, then what's the purpose of building something that we might not be able to satisfy their power needs? So I get people's environmental concern, and I get, you know, uh, habitat issues and wildlife and all the rest of it. Completely understand where, what people are worried about. But the fundamentals, if they can't operate because they don't have the power, then there's no sense building something that you can't generate. So I get it. I, I yep. know exactly where you're coming from. Well, that's that's exactly correct, and I mean, um, our, our, is 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 Gull Island a part of this conversation now? I mean, is is the public in this province going to have this conversation or not? Is all I'm asking. And I mean, this I think it's incumbent upon Minister Davis to appoint a public review board under under the existing legislation, under the process that we already have, so that we can have this wider conversation. That's. I don't think that's unreasonable to ask for that, Patty, in a democratic country. Well, the 2,225-megawatt elephant in the room is Gull Island. I mean, when the premier was in Quebec not long ago, meeting with other premiers and, of course, governors from the New England states, Gull is being talked about there. It absolutely is. I don't know why we haven't heard more about it. You know, we'll focus in on 2041 and what that means for the Upper Churchill, a redress between now and then. But... The Premier of Quebec talks about Gull all the time. I follow along some Quebec media, especially on hydro-related matters. That drips out of his mouth all the time. Yeah, well, Patty, you must remember, of course, that when we assessed Muskrat Falls under the uh, Federal Environmental uh, Impact Assessment, uh, that we also assessed Gull Island. Yep. That was in the same assessment. 
absolutely. Now, there's a few tangles there, you know, for instance, with the Inu Nation and the rate mitigation that will cost them about a billion dollars in monies that they negotiated. They say no movement on Gull Island until that's dealt with. So there's a lot of moving parts before there's any even legitimate conversation about Gull. But I tell you right now, not only is that assessment done, and if we're talking about Atlantic Loop and 150 megawatts for world energy, it's hard to imagine other power sources that are going to satisfy all these markets and all these needs if Gull's not part of it. I'm not promoting Gull as a project, but if we're just simply doing math, that 2,225 megawatts plays some sort of role. Yeah, I mean, let's face it. Let's face it. If we need 155 megawatts to run the ammonia plant out there, um, I, I just, I just can't even conceive of where it's going to come from. And I mean, even if Gull Island comes on stream, it's going to be another 20 years. That's so. right. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know the answer to this. I mean, are, are we going to dam up every little tiny river that we have now in order to, to feed this ammonia hydrogen monster here? I'm sure that wouldn't even satisfy. It. I mean, remember back before Muskrat, no. the crowd at the, uh, the Harvard Center did an evaluation of hydro capacity with uh, what you just mentioned, damming up the little rivers. All that'll do is dam up the little rivers. It's just like putting your finger in the break in the dike. It won't satisfy power needs. When we're talking about the numbers that you and I are discussing this morning, Gary, it's an excellent question. And one, if there's no answer to, there's no sense talking about putting turbines up if we don't know how they're going to get powered when they need it, when the wind's not blowing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Patty, thanks. Thanks, Gary. Or Greg, pardon me. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah. Huge questions. Absolutely. Will I take Jim here, David? Okay, let's go and say good morning to the president of the RCMP Veterans Association on line number five. That's Jim Power. Morning, Jim. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you this morning? That's kind, sir. How are you doing? Good. Good. Just wanted to announce that, that after two years of uh, taking a break for COVID, we, we've started our uniform services uh, dinner and dance again. And uh, this year, the RCMP Veterans Association um, are the hosts. Um, and we just wanted to say that it's on the 14th of October at the Surgeon Lieutenant Commander W. Anthony Padden Building on the Boulevard in Pleasantville. And uh, that's a military building. Um, it starts at 6 o'clock for cocktails, 7.30 for dinner. There's a dance to follow, and this is for spouses as well. The tickets are $60 single, $120 double. The meal is prime rib. Substitute chicken uh, if you request it in advance. Now, the Uniform Services Dinner was started about 14 years ago, and really it, it was started for, uh, as a social event for people involved in frontline critical response uh, stuff. And we found that we were meeting uh, uh, people out doing uh, stuff, but we, we never got together socially. So we started this uh, dinner. So it's open to the serving and also to the retired police, military, Coast Guard, fire departments, CBSA, paramedics, provincial and federal wildlife units, penitentiary guards, uh, ground search and rescue, all the people that would normally be involved in some kind of an event like that. Uh, so uh, in a lot of cases, people will say, well, I don't have a, a uniform. I, I can't go. It's no problem. It's a formal deal. It follows all the formal military or regimental traditions that we have. So it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of fun. Uh, if you don't have a uniform and you'd like to attend and you fit the criteria, yeah, just bring your best uh, Sunday go-to-meeting clothes, I guess, uh, it's a, or business attire. Uh, during the meal, we will have a um, music provided by the Royal Newfoundland Regiment Band. 
so um, uh, it's it's a good it's a good deal, and we as the RCMP vets hosting it, we'd certainly like to reach out to all our people, uh, the Veterans Association members, as well as retired veterans that aren't in the association to support this. It gets us to show off a little bit, and this is of course the 150 year of the RCMP. Um, across the country so we'd like to do that but we'd also like to reach out to the serving members that are out there Um, many of them have never experienced going to such an event as this where we follow all the traditional uh, uh, regimental uh, uh, dues as we go by and this year the RCMP Veterans Association has a new ensign and uh, we will be unveiling our new ensign uh, at this dinner so the, uh, if anybody has any questions or if they would like to ask about it, uh, we have an email address where you can just call either to get tickets or to see if, in fact, that uh, you can go to it. It's usdtickets at gmail.com. Got it. And uh, having attended in the past, uh, the sense of pride in the room is palpable. The uh, emotional and poignant ceremonies that take place are a fun part of the evening. So uh, take it from me, it's absolutely worth your while to attend. My father spent some time in the RCMP. His name is on one of the stones out in the Memorial Garden behind the detachment, which is a source of pride for us. And Jim, hopefully this is a rousing success. I have the email address if anyone's looking for it. I wish you good luck with the event. Thank you very much, sir. Have a good day. You too, Jim. And we enjoyed you. We enjoyed you as the guest speaker a few years ago. That was fun. Thanks, Jim. All the best. Bye-bye. Jim Power, president of the RCMP Veterans Association. Quick, before we get to the news, Goulds Bypass, southbound, the road is closed in both directions. EMT around the scene. There was a collision there, so Goulds Bypass, stay clear for now. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. Good morning, Debbie. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Good, good. I'd like to bring it to your listeners' attention, and I've talked to you before, I don't know if you recall. Uh, I am currently using psychedelic medicine to help heal my mental illness. I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I also have a seizure disorder, which is psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, which are a result of the uh, complex PTSD. Uh, So I'm trying to heal both of these mental illnesses through psychedelic treatment. I wrote a a letter to uh, Honorable Tom Osborne two months ago, copied it to my MHA, Andrew Fury, uh, asking, requesting, wanting to know what the province is doing to catch up with the rest of the country and the rest of the world in terms of uh, offering uh, mental illness treatment with psychedelics. Uh, I've yet to receive a response. I've been talking to Andrew Fury's office, and they said they would get back to me within a few days. But I I think it's something that really uh, needs to be brought to the public's attention. I I was a counselor for 25 years in Labrador City. In 2012, I became, uh, I hate to use the word disabled, but uh, I did. I couldn't work anymore because of this mental illness. And since that time, I have... um, the only way I can describe it is suppress it using antidepressants and all the uh, pharmaceuticals that you can imagine. Some of them just about drove me over the edge, um, but none of them were fixing me. I've had therapy, I've had therapy, you name it, I've done it. 
and thank God I have uh, the background that I have. Otherwise, I don't know where I'd be because I, my heart goes out to people who don't understand these illnesses. They're very complex, as as mine is even named. Uh, but uh, I, I have been in the mental health system, and, and I would consider myself a burden on the mental health system since 2012. I've held a space with a psychiatrist who is amazing but has not been able to help me because he has no understanding, no training in this type of therapy. And I guess I was so desperate to get well, I uh, I just started searching for, for other things because I had heard about psychedelic use, particularly to help people with PTSD. <clears throat> I did my research. I was, first of all, going to go to a ketamine clinic in Montreal. There is Health Canada's approved ketamine treatment in, in Montreal, and there are also some couple of clinics in Ontario. Uh, for different reasons, which I can't get into at the moment, I, I was unable to do that kind of treatment. So I kept searching further. I did find a doctor that Health Canada had licensed in Ontario to practice um, treating patients with PTSD using psilocybin, which is mushrooms. Um, he was unable to help me because I wasn't in Ontario. So anyway, uh, long story short, he referred me to someone else. And I took it upon myself a year ago now. It's, it was a year last October that I had my first psychedelic treatment. It, it's costly. <clears throat> I don't think <clears throat> we should have to pay for something. We have a ment- mental health crisis in the province, in the country, in the world. I have a, a following on Facebook. I have over 4,000 people that follow me, and I talk to people all over the world. And, you know, it's not only our um, country that, that is starting to do research. Um, there's provinces that are doing, Health Canada has approved some people to do it, uh, um, to to help people using psychedelics. I'm not saying that it's for everybody, but for me, it's working. I've done three intensive psychedelic treatments. I did one in October last year, one in January, and I just did one uh, about a month ago. Is this with ketamine? Uh, no, I don't use ketamine. Uh, ketamine, it wouldn't have worked out well for me. You would have had to been outpatient, and I just am not well enough to do that sort of thing as an outpatient. So, is it MDMA? Like, what is the psychedelic? Psychedelics that I have used are are all kinds of psychedelics. The the person who has the guide who has helped me has uh, used all kinds. I've it's been MDMA, it's been mushrooms, it's been LSD, it's been a variety of things. But the first treatment, I guess, uh, for me was um, I was left to kind of in a state of euphoria. It was it was good, felt really good. The second treatment was extremely intense. It was using DMT, which is a I'm not the expert in this, but I'm learning as I go. It's a derivative of ayahuasca. Uh, it uh, opened me up and opened up the wounds from my childhood, the abuse that I've endured my whole life. It opened up an avenue to um, heal. And that's what I've been doing since. I've, by experimentation only, through my own experience, I have found that psychedelic cannabis, and I mean, it's legal in Canada, so that's amazing. The other psychedelics are not legal in Canada. Um, But I have found through trial and error that psychedelic cannabis is now helping me to heal further. And it's it's amazing. It's hard work. Um, I say it's not for the fate of heart because I have had to open up and relive my trauma from my past, 
But by taking the pharmaceuticals, all it was doing was suppressing. I just couldn't heal. So it's a journey that not everybody mm. may want to face, but it's an option. I mean, we look at our prisons, we look at our mental health system, and there's so many people that are suffering mental illnesses. And I know that a lot of them, because I speak to them, it's because of the trauma that they've endured in the past. Sure. Yeah. So I remember our last conversation. So when you had the intense treatment, was that under the supervision of a licensed medical professional? No. No. So <laughs> no. since you I, called, I actually did some reading about this because, and there's a couple of things I found out. Psychedelic is actually derived from Greek. It means mind made visible. Right. The report that I uh, found and read was reviewed, medically peer-reviewed and published, and it was from a guy, his name was Daninovich. I can't remember exactly his first name, but he was the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. So it comes with mm -hmm. some serious reputation. Right. And they are talking about the significant upside. Now, if used recreationally, it can absolutely worsen symptoms instead of oh, relieving yeah. them. So <laughs> it, as you rightfully point out, it's not for everybody. The, I would imagine it's not only the research to wonder, uh, to assess whether or not it works, it's to also deal with what is a distinct stigma. Because people hear MDMA, ketamine, LSD, uh, ayahuasca as a recreational, potentially dangerous illicit drug. Mm -hmm. If it can have a potential helpful effect for folks like you dealing with complex PTSD, when we know that mental health and mental illness related matters in the country are growing yes. every stone needs to be overturned so if people have a problem with someone being prescribed ketamine if it's in a secure uh, setting it has a prescription and it has doses associated with the doctor's guidance delivered right. in a supervised setting mm -hmm. then why not why not examine exactly. it because you're not talking about getting high to go to the bar Friday night that's not what we're talking about here. no it's a completely different it's a completely different thing to do like you know people have you know I, I joke about it you might as well right it's just well uh, but uh, you know it has to be in a controlled setting fortunately I have a background in counseling I spent 25 years at it so I have an understanding of uh, a little bit although I'm learning as I go have a little bit of understanding what I'm doing or what's coming out you know because what what's in my nervous system is not pretty I've had a lot of serious trauma so you know my, my husband has been my guide and he's not really sure what's happening but I'm just helping him along the way but it is helping me to heal I had a, a major setback in June uh, I had to call 911, was suicidal, probably one of the worst that I've ever been. But since then, I can notice the, the healing. It's amazing. I, I don't have anxiety. I don't have flashbacks. I was terrified to go to sleep. I had so much trauma uh, in, as a child when, when I was sleeping. I was terrified to go to sleep. I no longer have that fear. I don't wake up with panic attacks. Like it's, it's amazing the healing that it's done. I know there's still some healing that needs to be done, but I can't stress enough that please, Tom Osborne, let's get with the times and get Newfoundland, get some people trained in Newfoundland so that we can start this. You know, it's yeah. happening. It's happening. So sure. please. And, and it's so, there's so many of us that are suffering needlessly because it's, like you said, the studies are showing that psychedelic treatment can help people who have these illnesses. So please, let's, let's do it. I'm trying, I have an amazing psychiatrist. I have an appointment with him uh, later on this morning. And I've been trying to encourage him to get in touch. And I, 
I think it may happen, I don't know, to get in touch with the, the psychiatrist that I contacted in Ontario. I'm hoping they can get something going, but, you know, things are so slow. There's no reason why our, our provincial government can't get this moving fast. Sure. You know, some of these are in nature. Psilocybin is just a magic mushroom, right? Exactly. You can find them all over the place. They're very exactly. close by where I'm working right now. Peyote, add that to the conversation. It's natural. Mm-hmm. So understanding what, you know, how it can work in safe conditions should be considered. I would imagine this would be a Health Canada-led initiative versus maybe pro- the province grabbing a bull by the psychedelic horns. Um, but well, it, I guess they both play a role. Uh, Debbie, it's, so. it's an interesting conversation. Anything else quickly before I have to say goodbye? Um, just to say that, you know, uh, yes, Health Canada has to approve things, but I, I don't know, and I haven't done a lot of the research, but I do know that provinces are taking it upon themselves to start the studies to, to get things moving. So I just, let's keep the conversation going, and uh, yeah, let's let's get on, let's get with the times. Yeah, I mean, and it's all about the setting as well, right? I mean, ketamine is used as a anesthetic, for instance, so it's exactly. not like these things aren't actually being used. Uh, I appreciate the time, Debbie. I wish you well, and I appreciate the topic. Yeah, you may hear from me again. I look forward to it. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and again, some of these things will just come with trying to overcome the the stigma associated with these drugs. Like peyote is coming from a small cactus. So it's growing out there. People have used it for all kinds of different things. We're not talking about Timothy Leary and, you know, the sexual revolution and stuff. We're actually talking about things that might work. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number 10, Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you to David, your producer, and yourself and VOCM for taking my call. No I know I know I call in a lot, Patty, uh, but uh, I got, as far as I'm concerned, an important issue to talk about, and that's the most vehicle collisions on our highways. And um, one of the reasons why I call is because people, I guess, who have been involved with this since my accident in 2002, they call me and tell me about where they lost a loved one or they had someone seriously injured. The weekend, I had a call about a friend of mine, actually, that had his pickup demolished by a moose vehicle accident, and uh, he had a, a outboard motor in the back, and if he didn't have a wreck on his back windshield, he probably would have lost his life because it probably would have went through the windshield. Uh, Patty, uh, I just, I'm in Cornerbrook right now, and I just came from Central, and that area where we had three people killed last year, is still not cut. The brush is right next to the highway, and it was where my friend had an accident the weekend, too, uh, also. Uh, I don't understand, and I don't know what we're going to have to do, because, you know, when we got Sobek on the go, and I'm not saying any bad about Sobek, because I appreciate everything we're doing. Listen, I, 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 it's unbelievable. We had a program put in place when the PCs were in that they would, they would sign... Uh, cut brush, uh, hydro seeded, they would uh, do uh, fencing where absolutely necessary, and that program is not working very well. Uh, right now, there's lots of areas where the brush is not being cut and we're having moose vehicle accidents. We haven't got an inch of fencing, no hydro seeding. Patty, I don't know, like I, I know I'm probably talking on diff ears right now, but I don't know what we can do because. It's very serious. Like, I'm scared to death to drive at night. I, I, I've been in the middle of the highway with my moose whistles on, of course, uh, and I'm frightened to death. And the next life could be yours or mine or anyone out there that's traveling on the highway. So I don't know why it's not an important enough issue for the present government to do something to save our lives. 
I, I just don't understand. Uh, I don't know what we got to do. Do we have to demonstrate, like the people that have, lo- have loved ones injured or killed? Do we all chip together like we did back in 2009, 2010, and go to the House of Assembly? I, the reason why I caused the Open Line Show, Patty, is because one time the Open Line Show, maybe it still do, got recorded in the House of Assembly, and it was a issue that was important enough that they would act on it and get something done. I don't know if that's still the case, but I know it's one thing. Uh, everyone out there know that there's not because Eugene Nipper don't complain enough because I'm a victim of a moose vehicle accident. I survived, thank God, still got a life to, to talk, a bread to talk. But it, it's a very serious thing, and, and, and I don't know, besides that, why don't the oppositions get involved? Because I'm sure David Friends, it's that popular, the Moose Vehicle Accident. David Friends either injured or killed, and they know, that, you know, I mean, with Fabian Manning, for example, Moose Vehicle Accident, uh, you know, uh, we, have, we have had many people, politicians in Moose Vehicle Accident. So I don't know why they don't do grub it off, hydro-seeded, have grass in the ditches, where absolutely necessary, like areas like where these three people got killed, fence it. I don't know why our lives are not important enough to do these things, Patty. I don't. I just don't understand. Do you? Uh, no. I mean, I don't know how many times we've spoken on this issue, but it's been a lot over the years. Hundreds. You know, the. I know that you're. You know, you lean towards the fence. And the fence, I suppose, in the most notorious hotspots can be helpful. But the, the business of not grubbing and not cutting back the alders and giving people an actual chance to see the animal coming, that's right. where, what I just don't understand, period. Because that's the easy one, right? right? That doesn't take any more technology or muscle power or elbow grease that we already understand. We know that it can be absolutely helpful. If you don't see the animal coming before it's in your windshield, then you didn't have yeah. a chance. So add in the pace with which you drive regarding the the weather conditions, the time of day, all of these things play together. So I play a role. The government plays a key role to just clear back the, the brush, the alders and otherwise from the shoulders. Because yep. there's places yep. that if you get too close to the shoulder, you can scratch the side of your vehicle on an alder. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Uh, last thought, Eugene, yeah. before I go. Where my friend had the accident, the, the, the brush is right next to the highway. Uh, I just drove to, to, to Cornerbrook. I passed the area where these people got killed. The brush... A year later, is still right next to the highway. Patty, why don't they listen? Please listen. Grub it off. Hydro seed it so we have seed. We have grass in the ditches instead of brush because brush grows back three or four feet a year. Please listen and maybe we're going to have to demonstrate. I don't know, but something got to be done. Patty, thank you for your time. Appreciate the call, Eugene. Take care. Have a, have a good one, brother. You too. Bye-bye. 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 Uh, get another one in here, Dave. Paul? Okay, let's go. Line number six, Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation is Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Uh, Doing okay. How about you? Good. Great show this morning. Uh, Two quick things. I won't uh, won't keep you long. Uh, Number one, the Concert of Hope, October 21st, uh, featuring the Masterless Men and Friends. Whoa. Uh, The Dolly Kitts and Scott Graham. Uh, we're about 70% sold on tickets, but it's the Arts and Culture Center, so every seat's great. Uh, but if you want to get one, you need to move to act fast. Uh, Arts and Culture Center, 709-729-3900 or artsandculturecenter.com. Uh, and as I've always said before, uh, the, uh, uh, the... Hello. Yeah, go ahead. 
Uh, sorry, I just realized there was also a speakerphone on that time. I apologize to you and your listeners. Uh, as you know, all funds from the uh, from the concert go directly to uh, support uh, the programs and services we provide for families and individuals who are dealing with uh, an eating disorder, this uh, very uh, deadly mental illness that exists in our province. So that's, that's item number one. Uh, it's, it's, it's a return of the Concert of Hope, and it's always been a great great fundraiser from us, and the Masterless Men have always been great friends of the Foundation. Absolutely, and with very close personal reasons behind it as well. Uh, yeah. Paul, give the folks the details one more time on any event you'd like them to consider. Yeah, okay. Well, of course, the Concert of Hope is the, ma- the main one right now, and that's uh, October 21st, tickets at the Arts and Culture Center. Uh, the, the last thing, Patty, I'd like to do today, as, as you know, and I've, I mentioned it on your show a couple of times, that September was walk month for us. Uh, we were very fortunate this year that we had walks in a number of regions of the province. It was a record number of walks for us, five. That included St. John's, um, St. Anthony, Marystown, Happy Valley Goose Bay and Corner Brook, and I just want to give a great big shout out to the uh, to the many uh, people who came out to all those walks, and uh, they were a tremendous success. I'd also like to thank the sponsors in each of the regions who came on board with with snacks and drinks um, and uh, and just general general support. Uh, it was an absolutely fabulous uh, turnout from people, and we really want to thank the volunteers in all those communities who who helped organize those so uh, we're looking forward to next year and maybe it'll uh, be six or seven walks in the region so i appreciate the time this morning paul keep up the good work thank you very much you have a great day you too take care bye right, bye uh let's take a break when we come back brian wants to talk about the performance of the airlines and then we're going to speak uh, speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go now to line number two. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Okay, how about you? Oh, good. It's been a while since I phoned you. I moved for all my friends, and I'm pretty good. Um, first of all, before I get into what I was going to talk about, I think we're seeing the last of the Toronto Blue Jays. I lived through the last days of Montreal, I suppose. I guess you did too. Yep. And I think we're seeing the last of the Toronto Blue Jays. What do you mean the last of the Blue Jays? Where are they I, going? I don't know where they're going to go. But they're not I going can't. anywhere. I, oh, I think they are. I can't see anybody supporting the team. I don't even know how they made it to the playoffs. They're not going to do anything there. They didn't do anything last year. Buck Martinez is a good advice, good person on radio to tell us how great they are, but they're no good. And I think probably yes. I don't think they're any good. They won 89 games this year in the toughest division in baseball. Uh, their top four starters had the lowest ERA in the majors this year in combined for the top four. The problem they have this year is they just can't get the bats going, and there's lots of big-name bats in that when, lineup, but they just can't get the hits when they need them. When, they have a good team. 
when was the last series they won, Paddy? Uh, it's been a while. Uh, they lost yeah. in 2016 in the ALS. They yeah. haven't they haven't won a game in a while. They certainly haven't won anything prestigious like the World Series since the 93 season. So, But there's only so many teams make the playoffs of baseball. That's the trick here. See, it's hard see, to win. And they get supported. I saw some games this summer. There was 40,000 people every game. Last night in Tampa Bay in the playoffs, 19,000 people in the stands. The Jays oh, yeah. are fine. Without the Toronto Blue Jays, it's right. The Tampa Bay Buccaneer or Tampa Bay Lightning would have no wins. Anyway. Sorry, if it wasn't for Tampa Bay, what? Sorry? If it wasn't for Toronto, Tampa Bay would have no wins. Tampa Bay started the season undefeated until they came to Toronto when Toronto were the first team to beat them this year. Tampa Bay finished second only to the Baltimore Orioles, who yeah. I think won 100 games this year. Yeah, but, uh, you know, we're, we're going nowhere in this conversation. But uh, I do have a Toronto Blues they had, so when they go out of existence, I'll be able to show it off with my Montreal Expo hat. Um, okay. Paddy, a lot, of, a lot of my friends have been phoning me asking me an important question. They have gone to travel agents to book a, a, book a, a little getaway and stuff like that. And a lot of them have run into a lot of problems. And they phone me and say, who can I phone? I said, besides Paddy, I don't know. Is there an ombudsman that oversees the travel industry? Yes. Is there really? Yeah. It's the Canadian Transport Agency, the CTA. They, they hire, they deal with all airline complaints. Uh, so that's where you file it officially with the Canadian Transportation Agency. How about if it's with the travel agent itself? Well, I don't know if they deal with travel agencies necessarily, but that's who uh, deals with airline-related yeah. complaints. But I would certainly, you know, well, you can go to air travel complaints with the air, uh, what's it called, the air passenger protection. They have their own website. I think they probably do deal with uh, yeah. agency-related matters, but it's the CTA. That's the only place I would know where to, where to send you. Okay, thanks a lot, Patty. No problem. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, is there a, someone who deals with an oversight body of travel agency? Like, do they have an umbrella organization? They probably do. So I would look for that avenue as well. Okay, let's go to line one. Ted, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Oh, my gosh, I enjoyed your last caller. <laughs> <laughs> no, honest to God, I really did. I, uh, uh, the funny part about this is, I, uh, like I told David, I want to speak to you just a short uh, question on the National Football League, and then, I was, and then I'm going to speak briefly on the, on the, on the baseball, okay? Sure. On the football, Paddy, um, they're uh, beginning of the season. I, uh, Aaron Rodgers got, um, you know, the quarterback there that the Jets picked up, got injured on artificial grass. Yep. And I haven't heard anything on it after, but I did hear one night I was watching that I usually watch it. I played a pro line, like, but they were supposed to re remove the uh, <coughs> excuse me, the artificial grass from some of these uh, these places. Have you heard anything on that? Well, the turf is not great for a variety of reasons. Even if you're not wearing any sort of studded shoe, you can get your sneaker uh, tangled up in the artificial turf. Immediately after that, and this is not new because of Aaron Rodgers, the NFL Players Association, they went right out of the media again, you know, uh, calling on all the owners and the stadiums to be na natural grass. comes with an additional cost for upkeep and maintenance and what have you, but it's much more conducive to a safe uh, playing field, so that should be in place. I mean, 
mean, you talk about the size and the speed of these guys. It is not that difficult to get your, your shoe or your cleat tangled up in the artificial turf with very limited tweaks of movement. So it should be grass as far as so, I'm concerned. Uh, what you're saying, uh, 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 I appreciate this. Uh, I, I thought it was like I was, when I watched it that night, I thought there was going to be a movement underway to get rid of this. There was one place in particular, I'm not sure it said they were getting rid of its vote, but it is an ongoing problem uh, that you're aware of. More so than I am, do you know? Yeah, the Jets yeah. have new turf down, but <laughs> turf is just not ideal. Grass is uh, preferable to turf, and there's a bunch of fields that have it. Yeah. But, you know, if I was a player, I'd be hoping to play for a team, and hopefully my schedule throughout the year put me on predominantly grass fields versus turf fields. But, yeah, the, the Players Association has been talking about that for a long time. Yeah, but, Patty, on the, on the baseball, yep. uh, I'm a, I'm a, I will make quite clear. Usually hockey is my topic. Like, you know, I, I, I love it. It's our last sport that right? And I'm not, a, I'm not like I say, a, a baseball diehard man, like a fan or anything like that. But I, I have been watching some games lately. And actually, I've been betting a few of them on the pro line, right? But uh, I, I'm going to go on the limb now. I'm, I'm thinking that the Jays are going to win this game tonight. Okay? I really do. Okay. And, uh, of course, if they don't, they're gone, right? You know, that's it. It's, uh, two out of three, is it? Is that the series? Yep. Okay. Well, that's um, that there. Uh, you're talking about Tampa, uh, about Tampa Bay. Yes, I know I've been following it a bit, and Tampa Bay certainly came in second there. I think the Baltimore Orioles certainly have been, a, I think, 101 wins a year, I think it is, right? Yeah, Baltimore have yeah. an incredible team. They are a great team, and... Uh, and uh, well, I bet four games last night, and I never got one right. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not a really good baseball. Well, I bet you a lot of people took the Rays, but the Rangers handled them for nothing. I bet you a lot of people took the Brewers, but the Diamondbacks with a bit of a home run outburst beat the Brewers last night. The Phillies demolished the Marlins. It was only 4-1, but the Phillies had complete control of that game. And that I'm interested in the Cardinals-Red Series, by, to be honest with you. But for Blue Jays tonight, I'm a Blue Jays fan. Well, I really, I really, have, been, I really have been following... Uh, a bit, okay, because I got the, but now on these American stations now, I'm not getting any baseball games, right? But I could have kicked myself in the butt this morning because I I, I, have, I watched those Texas Rangers earlier in the year, right? And when they're hitting, they're a good team, okay? They're Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. they look unstoppable and sometimes they look dreadful. Yeah, and in the West, you've got, uh, uh, I think the Braves are... Braves and the Dodgers are pretty good teams, right? In the National League, yeah. yeah. But I'm going out on the limb. I'm going to, I don't know, I might put a few bucks on night. I'm, I'm going to, I, I, I think the Jays, although I was told this morning by a good friend of mine that the, uh, the uh, what's the team they're playing there? Uh, uh, Minnesota, yeah. They're a good team, right? But they got... Uh, another good pitcher going again tonight, okay? They do indeed. Pitching, yeah, and, uh, the Twins have good pitching. A couple of little things before I, just before I clew up, I just, uh, to get back on it, see, uh, the last time I was talking to you, um, I uh, said I had the uh, great pitcher, the Caribou, yep. um, was gone over to Trinity Bay to get framed, right? Uh, Wayne George, the artist. Uh, okay, I've got it back, but I'm hoping sometime I'm hoping sometimes that Gus French, a uh, good buddy of mine, drops in, because I don't, uh, anyway, I'd like to send you a photo of that, right? Sure. So I hope Gus does that, because, uh, yeah, my gallery is coming on pretty good. It's a private gallery. Well, boys are coming up with some great stuff. But now, before I right. go... Very quickly, I go ahead. Very much. This is very quick. 
just remind the people, uh, especially uh, I think the voting for the PC leadership, I think it starts today, okay? That's uh, this October the 4th. Yep. I think, and the uh, registered delegates, they can, they can vote right up until the, I think it's the 14th, right? Like I said, I don't follow politics much now like I used to, but I still keep an eye open once in a while, especially now with the what's going on. I'm starting to look at the American stuff there with the first time in history the Speaker of the House got kicked out, right? But uh, I'm a new Speaker appointed in our own Canadian government there. Yeah, not appointed, voted in. Remarkable, on the same day an American Speaker gets voted out and a new Speaker gets voted in in Canada. Yeah, first black uh, Speaker of the House of Commons as well, which I don't know if people find that notable or noteworthy, but that's the facts. And I uh, appreciate the time. Good luck tonight on your pro line, Ted. No, 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 look, I'm dead serious, and I mean it 100%. I'm going to put Gus French right on the spot tomorrow morning, tell him to get his butt up here, take a picture, and send it in to you. I hope he will anyway. I okay? appreciate it. Thanks, Dad. I have more information uh, sometime on the Kyle, which I'll pass on at a later date, okay? Okay. I've been keeping on top of that one, too, buddy. Take care. Thank you, sir. All right, Bye-bye. Ted. Bye-bye. Yeah. yeah, the only thing about the Jays, I kind of wish Bassett was out there tonight. Burrios has been good, but I'm kind of a Bassett guy. Let's take a break. When we come back, David's in the queue. He wants to reply to some comments made by Nick Windsor and Greg Mitchell, and that is about World Energy GH2 and their wind, hydrogen, ammonia proposal on the port of Port Peninsula. Don't go away. And untangle your headset, and welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. David, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing grand. How about you? Oh, not bad, not bad. Been a while. Um, heard Nick Windsor on in the background, though. Had to listen in on him, and then he had another caller uh, shortly thereafter. And, uh, yeah, I got to say, uh, I haven't been catching the show as much as I have in the past. I'm not sure what the general sentiment is out there, but uh, just to remind people, uh, this is the single greatest economic opportunity that this province has ever had. How can that and, possibly be? Uh, well, I mean, I view, okay, uh, what I see in this is this is just the beginning. Uh, right now we're one of several dozen uh, regions around the world that are all pursuing, you know, grand H2 strategies. Uh, I'll point out that our own right now you would rate as conservative. We don't even break the top 10 uh, when it comes to uh, proposals that are on the table that have funding, I mean real proposals, in terms of our capacity. So I view this as simply the beginning. Um, you know, using this model, each one of these four, I believe the process is still open for some of the other 10 uh, previous candidates to reapply. So hopefully we might see more activity. Each one of these projects has expansion, and we haven't even tapped into our offshore. Uh, and mind you, remember, offshore is more expensive than onshore. This is why we're going after our, our you know, what, what's most economically feasible. And but, as, but we're not actually going after anything. Private companies are going after something. Sure they are. Well, I mean, that's the way we work. And I mean, I got to say, my basic, uh, I was kind of surprised by Mr. or Dr. Windsor's uh, assertion of how it's kind of, kind of like communism. That is to say, no private ownership that communities and i.e. the population should own all these projects. This is a commercial enterprise. The hydrogen economy, this, this burgeoning new economy, this is the equivalent of being in like Oklahoma in 1910 with the oil fields. 
You know, this is the beginning. Uh, if you if you were to describe to someone at the beginning of the oil boom in the Midwest that one day we would have an oil infrastructure of pipelines where vehicles in every corner of the world would run on this, they would look at you like ten heads. Uh, but this is this is where we are. We have. Hundreds of billions of dollars being invested right now, trillions more on the table coming in the next uh, 25 years. And we are on the basement floor. Uh, We pulled this off successfully. It will put us on the map. And right now, people say, oh, we're committed to Germany. We have a memorandum of understanding, but this is a global network. And in the end, those uh, um, regions who are able to get their act together, who are able, like any business, to uh, balance the private and, and, and public concerns, who find a way forward, who develop properly, who hit all the right key points. I mean, in this rush that we have globally right now many projects won't survive of course not i mean we're already seeing it you know there's the thirst for hydrogen is growing but then there's new stories out there that are irrefutable where they're walking away from hydrogen based on the price especially the green product so wouldn't you say that this is the biggest biggest economic upside or shot in the arm that the province will ever have experienced i mean that's just demonstrably not true though right oh no no well well, okay well what's our um, i mean if you do the on our current royalty basis, once we have these four projects, and these four projects will be bringing in, oh, I forget the exact number now, but let's just assume that with the GH2's basis of expansion that we're going to be getting on close to a million tons a year. Not, that's, that's where my goal is. And at a million tons a year, we're going to be making $2 billion a year, which is more than the oil industry has ever brought. No, that's not, the the, that's not the numbers the government uses. Oh well, that's yes, it is the government. They've that's the numbers that I use to to expand upon what they have provided. And once the water uh, comes in full of kick, which is a wonderful way to initiate this progress, yeah. And given once again what the feeling is, because unlike oil, and and more in the lines of our fishing if properly managed, these projects are here forever no they're not there is no one they even well, well, they well. even call their own lifespan 35 to 40 years so the that's, question that's of the, that's so that's the lifespan of the materials so when these turbines reach their lifespan they will be replaced but why would you give up an oil well that's pumping oil this is the point of the hydrogen economy this is forever as long as the winds blow as long as rains fall we will be a as provided. and as long as there's a thirst for this particular product, which is and, and, still yeah. questionable, and that I debate absolutely. One, I my my, I I mean I, I listen. I in 2012 when I was in engineering school, I was the hydrogen bug there. Uh, I was the one who made sure that the fuel cell in the lab was fully assembled, even though that wasn't part of our curriculum, because we were in oil and gas. And hydrogen, even then, as a major component within the oil and gas complex, the hydrogen economy was viewed as as sci-fi, as being, you know, something that would happen way down in the future. The fact is there are lots of people who have been putting the money in, putting the time in. The technology is there and valid. And because of the acceleration of the green, uh, uh, um, the the ESG movement combined with the necessities uh, imploded on the uh, world by COVID and, and some really final looks upon supply chain, we realized uh, that that 
H2 is now, and hence the money is there. When Germany and, more importantly, the EU uh, began their involvement and then finally locked down with the uh, U.S. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the money is there. This is the equivalent of 1990s, mid-90s, when the government finally said, we're going to put the money into battery tech. And then people said, oh, this is a fly in the sky. And now we have Tesla, the most valuable stock in the world. It's easy to say, looking in hindsight. And I'm going to say that this is hydrogen. This is not a particular yeah. kind of chemical. This is protons. On the engineering side of this, we are basically looking at a world where we're going to be moving electrons and we're moving protons in places. Yes, sure, but that, that's always yeah. been the case in energy. But Not really, no. It no, is. No. But relatively it, new. Uh, but World Energy GH2, is, just hold on. But even talking yeah. about battery technology. I mean, how do you square the circle with world energy in the first phase, 164 wind turbines and utilizing battery storage are still looking to our grid for upwards of 150 megawatts 24-7 over the fall and the winter. So they obviously don't have that completely figured out. And here's the economic numbers. So this is directly from the government based on assessment done by the four proponents and the compilation of the numbers. Peak employment, 11,694. Economic impact regarding GDP ranging in the lifespan of 35 to 40 years. That prediction is $206.2 billion, which is not revenue to the province. That's a GDP number. Revenue to the province over the course of up to 40 years is $11.7 billion, not $2 billion a year, because your $2 billion a year is $80 billion. Once again, those numbers provided are with them very much constraint, and I simply... We'll stand by it. I can send you the numbers. It's pretty easy. They're, 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 their escalation clauses, I mean, it's all pretty standard math. And, yeah, if we can get to a million tons of H2 per year, we're going to be looking at roughly somewhere in the range of $2 billion coming into our coffers on those mature projects, okay? That's 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 the economic and how the royalty structure is sent. Those constraints that you just listed are based upon uh, 35-year long-term uh, within the confines of a strictly a GH2 and their production numbers. I mean, GH2 project right now is 250, a quarter of that. The other three projects aren't, aren't, aren't at that level. So the fact is we're going to need some more on top of what we already have to reach that million. But that's that's the number I keep in my head, and that should be the goal that we're going with. Yeah, because but- if we can get a million, that still doesn't quite put us onto the level of global production that we're going to need. And it doesn't yeah. it doesn't energize a single thing in this province, yeah. which I think is a fair concern that well, people have. That, and hold that, on a second, that, David. That's a big part. That's a big part. Okay. Hold on. I'm sorry. And the that those numbers I just gave you is not only construction and operations, it's also decommissioning phases of all four projects combined. So it's, yeah. there's a disparity between the math. Greg Mitchell, who also called on it, has a very important question. Where is mm-hmm. the power coming from? Because if World <laughs> Energy is looking for 150 megawatts uh, uh, a day, pardon me, uh, 150 megawatts 24-7. If the other three projects, let's just say add another 152. Where does that 300 megawatts come from is an excellent question. Long term, we know where it's coming from. It's coming from where we've always said it's coming from. Where? I've spent the hydro resources that we have in Labrador, i.e. Gull Lake, and the deal that we're going to make between Quebec, because Quebec needs this too, we need some. Hopefully the people on the table can make this math work. But but, but is, it's a big but. For the last 10 years, 
last 10 years, I've been on the side of defending not how the project was run, but the basis and the fundamental logic behind Muskrat Falls. And the biggest argument was we didn't need the power. And here we are. I'm going to say right now it is because of Muskrat Falls that we are looking at tens of billions of dollars of investment coming into rural Newfoundland. It is purely because of Muskrat Falls and, and adjacency rules. All right. That's another thing we need to talk about here, about why Newfoundland has this built-in advantage. Right now, as far as I'm concerned, we are one of only two regions in the world that meet full adjacency standards based upon EU uh, uh, regulations. That means we're we're the only ones who can actually go and properly do this without further investment. Let's just Muskrat say, Muskrat. I do have to get to the news, but Muskrat cannot, uh, Muskrat cannot satisfy their power needs if we talk about the in other the power needs. In, in the short it, term, it can't. It, it, it doesn't have to. It's about what's on paper. We have a hydro, a clean baseline provided by Muskrat Falls. If Which doesn't satisfy the power we, needs of these projects. Like, I don't know why you're disputing something that is demonstrably well, accurate. Wait a second. This is it. We're, we're, we're criticizing $40 billion worth of investment and the only real economic investment because we need to build more power? Well, we because need to ask the questions, David. I know you're all in, and that's fine. You're all in. Yes. Uh, we all get well, it. But to not ask do we David... Have for development. But not to ask the fundamental, obvious questions is really, you know, okay. it is not a very wise approach to take. This is how David, it's going to work. David. We're going to buy some gensets. We're going to buy some gensets for the short term. Oh, I see. That's a... Okay, so what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, is that if we're talking long term, and you're saying, well, it's the, you know, the elephant long in the room that is gull out. Okay, I can, I'll, I'll let you just wrap it up. Go ahead. Okay, no. Simple. Long term, we develop Labrador. The time scales work here. I'm not believing right now, based upon international supply chains, that these projects are going to get up to go in 2024. Hopefully, if we can get them done by 2030, we'll be lucky. By that point, whatever happened in Gold Lake is going to be well underway. Plus, we're going to have a shifting agreement with Quebec, which is under negotiations right now. In the meantime, we may install some convertible gensets, which is a technology which is being worked on by every single provider, that we can start filling up with gas, filling up with oil, which we can be converted to H2. That's the beautiful thing about the H2 economy. Once we start making it, we can actually have our own source of it here on the island, and it becomes a wonderful okay. circular economy. If you started now, building... I, I would argue, I asked the question, why very can't we quickly. develop more power? Why can't... What do, what do you see as being this major impediment of putting in more power? They're talking about building these things in the next 18 months for per actual export. If you started building Gull Island today, well, it wouldn't be done by 2030 either. So, I mean, no, we just got to be realistic here. I just laid in. I just laid in. We can buy. They've already been looking at the pricing. And right now... Why should we buy looking. anything? We don't need the power. They need the power. But, but oh, wait a second. What world do we live in where this is how you build businesses? Like, this is how you build an economy. Like, what, what do you think? businesses are going to come here and say the argument for Musgrave Falls was the fact that it gave us decarbonized baseload, which everyone said, oh no, we don't need this power. Well, obviously we do, and we need more of, more of it. In the meantime, we have okay. the ability to put temporary temporary carbonized power, which is then convertible to decarbonized. So, I mean, I really don't understand why the, that, 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 that leap is, is a problem. And okay, can't. David, I have to get to the news. It's five past. Perfecto. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Bye-bye. Break time. Don't go away. 
Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning to the executive director at CNL. That's Ryan Cleary. Ryan, you're on the air. You and your listeners, sir. Thank you very much for taking the call. No problem. Patty, I'm calling in uh, today uh, in response to your call yesterday from um, Jeff Loader with the Association of Seafood Producers. Um, Loader said that the cause of this 300,000 pounds of spoiled crab this year was the fact that boats were fishing in July and August. He said that crab is not meant to be caught in July and August. And Patty, first thing I have to say is that there's truth in that. So snow crab should ideally be caught earlier in the spring and ocean temperatures off Newfoundland and Labrador are warming. That, that's undeniable. But my, my point for calling is that warming waters and higher, t- and higher temperatures alone, they're not what caused the increase in spoiled crab this year, not from the licensed ent- enterprise owners that I've spoken to with that I speak with every day around the province. So for the information of your listeners, I, I know you know this, the 300,000 pounds that was spoiled, that's not a lot of crab in, in the context of, one point, of the 1.2 121 million pound quota so 300,000 pounds only works out to 0.2 percent but patty here's the point when you combine that that massive 400 percent increase in spoilage that 300,000 pounds last year it was 60,000 pounds when you combine that with the with the strict trip limits and fishing schedules that told fishermen when to fish and how much to fish combine that with almost 8 million pounds of quota that was left in the water this year and then the delay with plants handling other species like cod um, there was a day and age when plants could handle uh, more than one species at a time not anymore all of that patty all of that points to a shortage of processing capacity the plants could not handle the crab that was calling in that was coming in yes waters are warming yes snow crab should be caught earlier in their in, in the spring but there's also not enough processing capacity there's certainly not enough competition with with a with a cartel operating in the inshore fishery to handle the crab i won't go down that path today but but patty let me throw a couple of numbers at you in 2010 13 years ago there were 36 plants licensed to process snow crab in the province uh, 36. Last year, there were 25. So that's a 30% drop. At the same time, the total allowable catch of snow crab in Newfoundland and Labrador has increased by more than 50% since 2019. That's just four years. So, so my point is, Loader is telling part of the story, not the whole story. These companies are out to make profit. If, if Loader was so concerned about the health of snow crab, the health of the snow crab stock. Why did he and processors remove the 20% tolerance for smaller crab this year? That tolerance was specifically designed to reduce high grading, to protect the stock, and they eliminate the 20% tolerance because they put profit, this is the reason why, they put profit over the health of the stock. Loader also said, and and I read this on on your website this morning on VOCM, he he said that there's a severe labor shortage in the province. Now, I would say to Loader that if plants want to attract local workers, they they need to pay better wages. He he brought up St. Mary's Fisheries, bringing in temporary foreign workers. I heard the mayor of St. Mary's on your show speaking to you just a few weeks ago. He said that they paid local workers $23.50 an hour. Now, from what I understand, that's a lot more than other plants who pay well under $20 an hour. Maybe these companies that Loader represents should pay their workers better. Maybe then 
they could get a more stable workforce. I think you could say that for a lot of industries, but the fact of the matter is you also have to include the average age of a plant worker. So, I mean, that is a big part of this tale. And some of these operations, by the sounds of it, and I don't know if they're being completely honest, but without the ability to apply for temporary foreign workers, they wouldn't be able to satisfy whatever they're allotted to process. So there's something to be said for the average age, too, because do we think that moving from $19 to $23 is going to satisfy the employment gap? Maybe. But when you incorporate the average age, somewhere around 54 or 55, I think is the last number I read, I'm not so sure that's the be-all and end-all. It's obviously important. People want to make as much as they can possibly make, like the rest of us. But does that satisfy that particular issue? It's a component, but I don't think it's the only one. Well, and then, like I say, I don't think that loader is telling the whole story. He's telling the story from the company's perspective. They want to make profit. They're not necessarily out for the good of the rural community. You, you, they're not necessarily out for the good of rural communities for, for the good of making sure that harvesters and that plant workers are paid what they should be paid. Uh, he's also arguing, uh, listening to him yesterday, I mean, I was, I was bawling at the phone half the time, but he's, he's arguing that a foreign country like Royal Greenland should have no cap on the amount of crab it can process, but local Newfoundland Labrador's uh, companies like St. Mary's should have a cap? I mean, when the when the license, when the fish processing licensing board recommended a, a license for St. Mary's last year, they didn't recommend a cap. It was the province that brought in the crap for what re- the cap for what reason? Uh, I, I don't know. I have no idea. But from my perspective, the province needs to answer that question: Why did they implement a cap? Why didn't they lift the cap when there was such a backlog in uh, in, in processing when it came to the crab processing this past season? I don't know. I can only ask the questions. And uh, I thought we covered the appropriate uh, amount of territory with Mr. Loader. People can argue, accept, or question the comments or his answers to the questions. But I don't know. I asked him quite clearly, why is there any such thing as a cap on one and not a cap on another? I know. And I I listened. uh, I didn't hear your show yesterday morning. I listened to it last night, and I listened to it uh, uh, carefully. There's no doubt that he is protecting his members. Hittacy members, like Royal Greenland, like a foreign country. He's not representing the best interests of our inshore fleet uh, of plant workers. And people, when they're listening to this, they need to keep that in mind. When he makes these kind of points, he's about profit. It's not about communities. It's not about the future of the inshore. Yeah. Well, I suppose there's, you know, it's always going to be predictable that people that are hired to protect the interests of their members are going to do exactly that. If he wasn't, I suppose he'd find himself on the uh, on the job hunt line pretty quickly now has there been i know there was you know a little while back when say jerry Byrne was minister of fisheries there was concerns being brought forward by people who had small applications or small operations eventually some of them got approved so are there plant proposals in the hopper to go before the panel that are being rejected at this moment in time i can't recall hearing that type of story in the recent past there was a rejection last year. Bay Roberts. Bay Roberts asked for a oh, yes, uh, Bay Roberts, yeah. processing license, and uh, they were denied. Um, and then, in the case, like I say, of St. Mary's, uh, no cap was proposed by the licensing board. It was the minister that brought that in. Again, he hasn't been made to explain why he did that, why he didn't lift the cap. So, the last thing I want to point out, Patty, is, uh, and I think Loader mentioned this yesterday as well. The, the committee reviewing the fish price setting system. The deadline for comments is tomorrow. That's Thursday. So I can leave the email address with Dave, your producer, uh, if if people want that email address to send in their comments. Uh, But one of the questions 
and I'll leave this with your listeners, one of the questions that needs to be asked is what is a fair market return to the inshore fleet? I heard you mention this yesterday with Loader too. So a fair market return to the inshore fleet, is it 40% of the market price? Is it 50%? Is it 60%? From my perspective, it should be at least 50%. But the first thing's first, that needs to be decided on. What is the fair market return to the inshore fleet? then the only way to ensure that the insurer gets that fair market return is for processors uh, that Loader represents to show the receipts, the market receipts for what they get for the product. The problem, Patty, is that, um, and the board, um, uh, the, the licensing, not the licensing board, the price setting panel uh, has pointed this out. Uh, the problem is the fact that the processors will not reveal the market receipts. That would, that would bring in all kinds of transparency, would clear up all this mistrust, distrust in, in the industry. But the processors, ultimately, they need to show the market receipts and they won't. We need to set a fair market value. Is it 50%? Maybe it's 60%. I personally believe maybe it should be 60%. And then you make you have to make sure that they get that fair market return. The only way to do that is with, with a receipts-based formula or a free market account, economy bring in electronic auction. Well, I mean, I asked him that question too. Uh, no matter how we slice it and coming up with prices and fair market uh, equity for both sides – fair. We're going to have to change the way we do things. It's as simple as that. We can no longer have any type of snow crab fishery that extends well into the hot summer months. If the water temperature is what it was, in the top 10 feet of water, July and August, about 9 or 10 degrees warmer than usual, that's not going to be going backwards in years to come. That's only going to be further exacerbated. So how we harvest and how we process and how we truck it, to eliminate the amount of waste or dumping or whatever the case may be, that's just going to be the uh, the rule of thumb as opposed to the exception going forward so we're going to have to figure out how we get it out of the water how quickly we get it to the plants because that number is not going to change for the better and if look the amount dumped is very small when compared to the entire total allowable catch but a 411 percent increase in one season now will that be an anomaly or will that be something we have to deal with in years to come i would suggest the latter and, Patty, again, it's it's not just that uh, increase in spoilage alone. It's it's trip limits, it's fishing schedules, it's, it's backlog, whatever. But you add all of that up, and it points directly sure. to a lack of processing capacity. A, a final point, then, about this price, fish price setting uh, that, that's going on, and, again, the deadline's tomorrow. If the provincial government is going to continue with a system for setting fish prices, this is from my express, uh, from, 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 um, this is from my opinion, it if it's, going to, if it's going to continue with the system for setting fish prices, maritimes don't have it. It must guarantee. It must, Patty. It must guarantee a fair market return to the inshore fleet, or it should be eliminated. If you have a government system that, that's, it's not fair market economy like everywhere else. It's a government system. It has to ensure a fair market return to the inshore fleet. Plain and simple. End of story. I appreciate the call, Ryan. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. Ryan Cleary, ED at CNL. Break time. When we come back, Chad's in the queue to talk about housing issues in Trinity Conception. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Chad. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you today? Okay. How are you doing? 
Uh, not too bad, dear. I just, uh, you know, I've been for a while now. I, uh, I usually pay attention to the federal politics and stuff like that, you know. And uh, a lot in the news lately is always talking about the housing crisis here, Trudeau, and everyone in Pierre Polyev trying to come up with these plans. A lot of it are always talking about the greater Toronto area and stuff like that. But uh, I don't hear much about it in provincial politics there, about uh, what the, if the government has any kind of a plan here. I know that where I'm from in Carbon Air there, Carbon Air Harbor Grace area. Uh, you know, I, we're, I'm just, uh, I'm a, like, I guess, middle class. I, uh, I work and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just uh, getting over a, a bankruptcy. So I was just getting my credit and stuff. I'm looking for housing and stuff like that. But uh, in the meantime, like, I, I got two small children and a girlfriend there, and we're, we're having to stay with their in-laws. Uh, there's there's absolutely zero housing Pretty much, like every now and then, you get a couple little houses trickling or something like that, uh, and there's always a big lineup. But I, I don't know if the government has a plan there or or not. I know that, um, for example, uh, not just the middle class or something, but uh, Newfoundland Labrador housing down at Carbonier all summer, they've had the hotels full because there's just nowhere to place people, and I don't see it getting any better with the uh, Airbnbs. Uh, you got a lot of people now that are, that are making too much money. They're making more money in uh, in a weekend than what they would if they were charging their rent. So can't really blame those people, but it, it almost feels like there should be some kind of regulation to it or some kind of incentives to, to rent to people. I don't know, trailer parks or, or something. I just don't see any or hear any movement. On it, you know, I, I don't know if maybe it's something I've missed or not. But well, there's uh, been a couple of announcements, Chad. A little while ago, there was an announcement of construction partner between the feds and the province of 750 affordable units. There are some affordability numbers attached to it. But when you ask where the solution lies and mentioned a couple of potential options, they've all got to be a part of it. Trailer parks and modular homes and apartment buildings and uh, two apartment homes and building new houses. And, I mean, opening up all of the currently uninhabitable Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation units. That number's not as big as I thought it was, but it's, it's sizable enough that it could house another 50 or 70 families or whatever the case may be. So I think it's all of that. Because if we're going to pretend that just one idea is going to carry us through this particular housing issue, we're absolutely kidding ourselves. Again, the numbers are pretty clear. It says over the next six years we're going to have to build 60,000 units. Every single, pardon me, a banner year for housing starts in this province is about 2,500. So the summary comment for me is that every single uh, every single facet of housing has to be carefully considered, and probably every single facet of housing has to be included. That's right, and even like uh, I, I find that the housing that do come available are always uh, concentrated on you know you either see it for the you know uh, i guess uh, cheap housing and the and the 55 plus nobody wants to cater to younger families i guess um, for bad i don't know if there's just bad reputation or they just don't want to deal with uh, i don't know you wouldn't get that with families anyway but it just seems like there's no market for that particular class of people uh, okay. you know and if, especially now i guess it don't help with the mortgage situations and rates and all that kind of stuff but uh yeah, no, like you say, for example, for someone like myself, I'd, you know, in order to get a house, I'd have to move a, a couple communities away. You know what I mean? There's not, it was never like that. Uh, I guess it doesn't help either. They're bringing more people, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not against immigration or nothing, but where are they going to be putting all these people? We, we can't put, you know, we can't uh, find housing for our citizens now, right? 
Look, I mean, it doesn't make anyone a bad person to try to consider all of the issues associated with the housing crisis or access to a family doctor or daycare or anything, because it's all part of the conversation. So I had the federal housing minister, Sean Fraser, on this program some while ago, and they were talking about putting a cap on international students, which sounds ludicrous to me, because international students, we hope, with their uh, their credential, credentials upon graduation, stay. So pumping the brakes to make sure we're on the right track is not a bad idea. And and it's not just immigration that has seen, for instance, this part of the province grow. People are moving out of more rural, remote parts of the province. People are moving to Atlantic Canada. They're fleeing Ontario. So all of these things are part of the conversation. So I'm not going to shut anyone down when they say, you know, we have to consider immigration. Well, we do. Because people who want to come and make this province their home, they also want to have a place to live. So it's yeah. not like we're talking about terrible policy and terrible people. We're talking about mathematics. Do people that move to St. John's, for instance, have a place to live and at this moment it's becoming harder and harder so i get where you're coming from i want to pick up on an interesting point you made you know you say catering to your age group for instance that's where affordable housing has kind of been lost in the conversation affordable housing for a senior is different than it might be for you you have different needs inside the home. If there's someone with, uh, for instance, uh, mobility or disability issues, affordable housing is different for them. So we have to uh, understand who people are, where they are, what they need, and build accordingly. You know, if you just build the same 1,100-square-foot bungalow inside that envelope of 750, we're going to leave people out. And that doesn't make any sense either. Uh, I'll give you the final thoughts, Chad, before I get to the news. No worries. No, I just uh, just like to see it trickle down. I know you you hear a lot about the bigger cities and stuff like that. No doubt. I just really hope that the government they start seriously talking about it a little bit more and it trickles down into the the bays and the some rural areas. You know, like it's definitely it's definitely a problem. It's definitely something we have to consider for sure. I agree. Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador are speaking about this. They say that some of the smaller towns don't have the horsepower or the human resources to even be able to fill out the applications for access to the housing accelerator fund. There's lots of money out there. It's a difficulty in getting it. Like even in a big center like Grand Falls, Windsor, it took the town engineer almost a week to fill out paperwork just to apply for some housing money. That's got to be a bit more simpler too. We can't have bureaucracy be the burden for trying to get money that's actually allotted. It's sitting there we should be able to get access to that a little easier. And that's specifically for smaller communities like you talk about there. Chad, I enjoyed the conversation. I'm glad you called. Thank you. Take Have care. Have a good one, buddy. Thanks. Appreciate it. All the best. Bye-bye. All right, break for the news. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. All right, line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, we're trying to figure out the name of the guy, uh, senior, back a few years ago, that went in competition, and he, he was from Newfoundland, and he used to wear this white cap. Rex Scouty. You remember? Rex? Rex, Rex Scouty, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's a mechanic by trade these days, but he was super popular there for a while, wasn't he? It was true. What was one of his popular songs? I'm sorry, say that again? What was one of his popular songs? Oh, gosh. I don't know if I can remember any of the songs that he... But I do remember Rex. I I know Rex a little bit. I played in a couple exhibition hockey games with him. He's a nice fellow. He's a goaltender. Yes, yes. Rex Cowdy, right. Yep. And everybody was going around wearing the white caps for a while. Sexy Rexy. Yes, right. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. Take care. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. There we go. Rex Gowdy, a little blast from the past. 
Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Austin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you doing, boy? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, you might as well congratulate me on the Orioles taking the East Division. <laughs> Nobody else will. Congratulations. They got a solid team. They really do. Yeah, yeah. But uh, what uh, sort of made me call you today is a comment that uh, one of your good uh, friends uh, just gave the news uh, said yesterday. Um, uh, Brian Medora. Okay. One of the best newscasters in, in Canada. It's, I don't know how he, how he sleeps because he, he tells every score from every <laughs> hockey game, from every baseball game. He's even doing this new pickleball, whatever you call it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you two, you two should be up on the mainland somewhere getting the biggest kind of money. From your from your mouth to God's ears. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, whoever comes out of the Jays series, Jays and Twins, they get the Astros. Uh, whoever wins Texas and uh, Tampa Bay gets the Orioles. That, I'd rather play Houston than Baltimore, obviously, but I guess the Jays got a lot of work to do to care about who's next. Mm. Now, well, Atlanta's going to take it anyway, boy. Atlanta's going to win it all? Yes. Yeah, you know what? Hard to argue with that. That's an absolute powerhouse. And that kid, yeah. Acuna, Acuna Jr., holy yeah. moly, what a uh, baseball player. Something else, isn't it? Seven, 77 or something? Yeah, 40 home runs base. and 70 stolen bases. First guy in history. <laughs> in fact, there was only a handful, I think maybe five guys who have hit 40 home runs and 40 stolen bases. So That's he's the right. first 40, 50, first 40, 60, first 40, 70. Amazing. Yeah. And the Rangers came, you know, the Rangers came out of nowhere and then made it. To, you know, they they were losing first of all, and then they put on a few games at the end of it, and they made it to the playoffs. So yeah, I mean, Seattle thought they had Texas number, but it turns out Texas was the better team. The the main thing that uh, uh, Brian Medora said yesterday that I I had to call you about was when he said that the Blue Jays partied because Seattle lost. That's kind of what it felt like. Sort of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. I don't really like that about how baseball teams celebrate making the playoffs. You know, and I mean, the it, it might have affected their play the next day. I mean, if, if they were drinking too much or, you know. Well, the bubbly goes right to your head. Anyone who's ever had a few glasses can tell you that. That's, that's true. Yeah. So, what, what, you know, what are they going to do today if, if they lose? You know, I mean... You know, I would imagine to be more drinking, but this one based on sorrow. <laughs> yeah, and and it'll be in their own cabins or whatever, wherever wherever they go. That's right. I imagine they'll be able to find a pub somewhere in the Twin Cities. <laughs> Guaranteed. Yes. Anyway, you have a good day. Enjoy the playoffs, Austin. Yes, yeah. Okay. There's lots of them to come. There is so. Okay. Thanks, sir. Uh, Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. It's our local uh, Baltimore Orioles fan. And I remember Austin said that. Did he say he met and spent some time with Boog Powell? I think he did, yeah. Let's go to line number one. Brenda, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thanks so much for, for all that you do and for giving the voice to Newfoundlanders all over the province. Appreciate oh, that. My, pre uh, my pleasure. Uh, I'm calling this morning. I'm actually the spokesperson of a committee. Well, we're called the Southwest Coast Alliance, 
and we're very concerned about the wind energy projects. We have a Facebook group called Protect NL and email protectnl at outlook.com if anybody has any questions. But we're calling because we really liked what Greg Mitchell had to say earlier when he started to discuss the cumulative effects of what's going to be happening with all the wind energy projects. And we've actually launched a provincial petition where we are urging our government to please do a cumulative effects assessment. And we're so glad that we did because to have the feds say no to the environmental assessment, you know, we really were were echoing what Greg has suggested with the cumulative effects. Which would include what, Brenda? Well, what we want to do is, like, the transformation to a green economy, it can't be done at the expense of the health, the water, the wildlife, the ecosystem, and a cumulative effects assessment. And there's also a really good interview done on Mi'kmaq Matters by Chief Byron Alexander with Indian Head First Nations, if people want to listen to that. But we would do our own assessment where we could look at the industry risk on our water systems, everything as one big package, the wildlife, the marine life, hunting, fishing, you know, and this suggestion of a public review board, we love that also because the other thing we're asking for on our petition is meaningful consultation. I think that we've really seen what the government has done with their public consultation was really just a one-sided propaganda presentation by the wind energy companies. We need our experts. We need our government officials there to answer our questions. Fair and, enough. And there's lots yeah. of questions. But the one thing about water is, you know, when the protests were taking place in mainland, they were blaming it on World Energy, putting that road in to install the meteorological tower, capturing data, what have you. One thing that I've never really quite understood, why the locals rejected the offer of a hydrologist to be sent in to examine exactly what's going on with the water in mainland. Because if we want answers, we need people who know what they're talking about to provide the answers, as opposed to the company saying, no, it's not us, or the local saying, it is you, to get an expert in there to talk about rainfall, runoff, drinking water, why, why why turn cloudy or what have you in uh, mainland. So I think that's probably another appropriate step that we could all take. And maybe we don't have to have someone accept the offer. Maybe the province just says, well, that's what we're doing. Well, you know, it's really interesting because I think there's a lot of very misleading information in there, Patty, that comes from this company, World Energy, GH2. And I'm going to give you a really good example now. They went and did a poll early on. And in their survey on wind energy, they said that 80% of Newfoundlanders were for wind energy. They only polled 473 people, just to make a point there, and only 160 of them was from Western Newfoundland. But yet they still said that Western Newfoundlander was 82% that supported onshore wind. When I followed up and asked them where these people were from, 164 people from Western Newfoundland, they were pulled between Corner Brook and Cardinal Valley. They may not have even lived on the Port of Port Peninsula. And the question in their survey did not ask them. The question said, which of the following would you support opening near your community? And World Energy GH2 continues to say most people support wind development in their community. That was not a question. So, like, I'm really concerned that this company continues to mislead the people of Newfoundland and Labrador because 82%—I would have answered yes to this survey for wind energy as well, but nowhere in this survey do they ask you if you would be willing to live 700 metres from a 656 foot wind turbine that's taller than the Calgary Tower. 
So, you know, there's two, there's big concerns here. So our petition is asking for a six-month pause. We want to see a cumulative effects assessment conducted, meaningful consultation. And the other thing we really want to see is funds up front for any land rehabilitation and decommissioning. We need only look at what happened to the fish sauce plant in St. Mary's Bay to see how we are going to get stuck with a mess to be cleaned up in 25, 30 years when we can no longer find John Risley or Sean Leet. You know, gone are the days that Newfoundlanders, people make money off of our backs and then we're stuck with the mess. But now that's, that's already been incorporated though, right? The decommissioning fund, it's yeah. there and it's been incorporated in the EIS, but the company is not required to put any funds up until 25 or 30 years when the actual project ends. And they're estimating $99 million in the EIS for just two of the wind farms. Now, this EIS only talks about two wind farms, but there's been four approved for this company just on the southwest coast alone. Well, now, the so, minister, when I asked him that question directly, he said one of the requirements would be for the indemnities to be put forward immediately. Well, I'd like to see that in writing, Patty, because I can't find that anywhere in writing. And the concerns with this company and even with some of the government, there's so much distrust there now because there's a lot of misleading information. But I would challenge, I would like to see this in writing because now it's a 4,000-page document that I've been reading. And I've asked World Energy to tell me specifically what sections are addressed to decommissioning, which they've told me. And nowhere do I see any, like, that the money is going to be given up front. So if the minister's saying this, please, let's get that in writing, because unless it's in writing these days, I'm very concerned. Yeah, now that wouldn't be put in writing by World Energy. That would have to be put in writing by the government, right? Because they'd be the one asking for the indemnity. And Minister Parsons, I'm pretty sure that uh, when I asked him that question, because there was two financial-related questions, or I guess three, relationship yeah. to the grid, uh, the polluter pays, and what's the other one I'm trying to think of here now? Uh, da, 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 da. Well, when it came to p- polluter pays, I mean, I asked him that one specifically. Oh, infrastructure. Any access to the grid, the, all the infrastructure required would be on the proponent's back or on their bill. So I will once again get clarit- uh, clarification from the yeah. minister, but I asked him about the decommissioning phase, and he said indemnities would have to be provided. So. At what as, time, as they should though? be at the start of the project or at the 25 years 30 years mark we got to really push for clarity here yeah sure uh, based on social license if let's say they surveyed a thousand people and only a thousand people in western newfoundland and 51 percent came back and said they are in favor of the project as they understand it today would that mean that's good enough for you well, you know, that's a really good question. Are they going to get good information, meaningful consultation, or are they still going to get a one-sided propaganda presentation from the wind energy or the salesmen involved trying to sell the project? Because right now, I mean, to give a survey out back in 2022, which is the survey that World Energy keeps referring to when they say 80% of Newfoundlanders are on board, a lot of these answers, the first answer is they don't know. How can we accurately support a project when we don't have the answers and now we have the eis in front of us and we're being looked at like this is a whole different language and the the you know where are our public where's our public review board where's our team of experts why is brenda kitchen and the southwest coast alliance having to become wind energy experts but to say 50 you know they say 80 percent of newfoundlanders support this survey 
but what education were the Newfoundlanders given? Maybe I should go through the survey and come up with a stat of how many people answered they didn't know. Maybe 90% of Newfoundlanders answered they didn't know. It's just misleading of the numbers. We need to be very sure. And I think one very common uh, discussion item that I'm hearing is that this is too big, too fast. The cart is before the horse, and we need to slow things down. And our committee, our alliance, is asking for this cumulative effects. We have a provincial petition because we want to show the government the signatures of the people who have valid concerns and want this project slowed down. I appreciate the time, Brenda. Thanks for this. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. That's Brenda Kitchen with the Southwest Coast Alliance. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number five, or line number two. David, you're on here. Yes, good morning. I just wanted to... We're, I'm down on uh, the Cloud Coast down in Lyon, and today uh, Lyon is, uh, is uh, celebrating the, the death of a or mourning the death of a, a, one of our greatest singers in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, Blaine Lamb, who was the lead singer of Kilkenny Crew, passed away five years ago today. He was only a young man, too. I don't think he was even 50, was he? No, he was a young man and a very good singer, very nice uh, very nice guy to speak to. He'd done a lot for the music industry. Spent uh, many, 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 many nights on George Street entertaining, and uh, he was the lead singer of Kilkenny Crew, and, of course, uh, the family is mourning his loss today, and so is the community. I met uh, I met Mr. Lamb, or Blaine, a couple of times, to be honest with you. He's also got family, the, the Brockervilles, right? Yes, uh, one of his uh, first cousins, the Brockervilles, uh, played on the band as the bass player. Right, yeah, yeah. And uh, and, and his nephew, too, uh, uh, I can't remember his name now, but he was... Uh, he was he was played on the band with him too. So like there was a there was three of them from from Lon itself. So uh, uh, Lon was very proud of Blaine and the, and the guys from Lon that played there. I'm trying to remember a couple of the people in the band. It was uh, Bob Tarrant was in the band. Uh, one of the Sam's boys was in the band. Yeah. Yeah. Sam. Yeah. Yeah. They were uh, they were they they, they brought uh, entertainment and laughter to a lot of uh, the Irish connection to a lot of uh, a lot of east coasters and of course all newfoundland uh, Kilkenny crew in their day was one of our top bands so yeah, yeah it's a very sad loss he was a young man and his family uh are on facebook today and very sad of his loss so uh, i just wanted to bring a point that uh, you know we have such great music music industry and i i, I think we should remember our our great musicians that brought laughter and, and entertainment to our people. 100%. Uh, is the community doing anything today to uh, remember uh, playing Lamb? No, because most of the, the brothers and sisters have uh, have moved away. A lot of them are living out west and all over the country and some are in town and whatever. So there's, uh, the, you know, it, it's it's a sad, sad situation, but we uh, we still can't uh, have them forgotten. So I just want to bring, it, bring the point in that... Uh, Blaine was a great singer and a great guy, and, and he needs to be remembered. I appreciate you making time. Uh, if you went to see the Kilkenny crew, one thing you could count on was to hear Dermot O'Reilly's classic West Country Lady. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Wonderful job on that. Yes, you did. Yeah. I appreciate the time, David. Thanks for the memory. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. All the best. Bye-bye. Yeah, Blaine was a young guy. I can't remember how old he was. Oh, Lee Brockerville, is it? Okay, Lee and Beth. Beth Brockerville as well. 
yeah uh yeah i can't remember how old he was when he passed but he was young he's i don't think he was 50 anyway nor, nor can i remember the circumstances uh, leading to his death but i do remember seeing the kilkenny crew many times and yes he would absolutely put off a fine rendi- rendition of west country lady of course an absolute classic from Dermot O'Reilly. Okay, let's check in on the Twitter box for the final time in the morning. Or VOCM Open Line, you can follow us there. You know, now with the additional information regarding the need for power for uh, World Energy GH2, and even with all their turbines, and even with all the battery storage, and battery storage is improving year over year demonstrably, the question's being asked, you know, it doesn't mean that you are 100% out. And it's easy to know when someone's 100% in, but asking questions to ensure that all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, we've got all the answers to the pertinent questions, of which there are many. Now, there is information out there to satisfy some people on some of the questions, but again... I guess some of that just bleeds into our psyche, doesn't it? Because we have made some sidesteps, missteps, and uh, blatant mistakes when it comes to some of these large-scale projects. So I guess that might drive some of these thoughts and some of these uh, opposition points that are being made. And again, it's pragmatic to ensure that it's going to be done right. Now, some of the business model concern, even though we are in, not as a province with uh, cash on the barrel head, but as federal taxpayers... There's big support there for these types of projects, you know, massive tax subsidies. So, again, we all have a stake, and it's easy to be all in if you're not living anywhere in close proximity to where some of these wind farms will be. And the turbines are massive. They just are. I mean, think about it. If a turbine is taller than Confederation building, we're talking about a substantial monopile, substantial turbines, right? So anyway, you want to take that on? We can pick up that and anything else when we pick up this conversation. Again, tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.